Hi, everybody, and welcome to this very special non-denominational holiday fun fest episode of the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpson. Wait, what? What's that? What? What's ha What's happening? Well, each week we talk about a movie parodied on The Simpsons. Maybe it was The Simpsons that introduced us to the film, or maybe when we finally saw it, we realized, hey, that's where that Simpson joke come from. Regardless, each week we pick one that one of us hasn't seen or hasn't seen in a while, watch it, and come together to discuss. And if the music playing in the background wasn't hint enough, I'm your host, Adam Scholes, and joining me as always is the Reagan to my Captain Howdy, my co-host, Nate Storing. How you feeling today, buddy? It's an excellent day for an exorcism. Yeah, that's right. This week we watched William Friedkin's The Exorcist, which, believe it or not, was released 50 years ago this year on December 26th, 1973. So, in my mind, it kind of sort of technically counts as a Christmas movie. Yeah, I think it's about as close to a Christmas movie as you can be without being a Christmas movie. Yeah, exactly. I mean, by release date alone, this, sh this should qualify it. You might remember it from such Simpson episodes as season two's Treehouse of Horror, season seven's Home Sweet Hum Diddly Dum Doodly, season 11's Faith Off, and season 12's I'm Going to Praise Land. Today, we're going to be specifically talking about the episode Faith Off, season 11, episode 11, original air date January 16th, 2000, directed by Nancy Cruz. Yeah, so I thought, you know, because Nancy Cruz is not necessarily a name that a lot of people who are familiar with the early days of The Simpsons are familiar with. Yeah, we haven't really covered her before. No, I don't it's, think so. I so I think. wanted to pull a couple of the episodes that other people might remember. I guess she kind of comes in around this time in the in the series. So okay. later in the, in the section that we're covering, but you might remember her episodes like Guess Who's Coming to Criticize Dinner, which is the episode where Homer becomes a episode. critic. Last Tap Dance in Springfield, which has a, oh. a really, yeah, it has a great parody of The Red Shoes, among other things. Yeah, um, another great one. Yeah. Hungry Hungry Homer, where Homer goes on a hunger strike. And we did actually mention that episode in our Full Metal Jacket episode, right. where he says, me so hungry, may or may not be a reference to that film. <laughs> and Jaws Wired Shut, which is when Homer is forced okay. to stop talking because he has his jaw wired shut and learns a lot along the way. So I, you know, of these later seasons, those are some of my favorite episodes, I think, of those seasons, like 11, 12 and 13. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. What I noticed when rewatching this episode is like we're in that period where I do vividly remember seeing the episode as it aired for the first time. Mm -hmm. And all of those episodes are episodes that I remember airing and like talking about at school the next day or whatever. So who knew Nancy Cruz turned out to be a secret genius, I guess. Totally. Well, and, and so she continued the show from this point in time to season 21. And then since then, she was actually the story artist for Zootopia, which is a movie I, mm. I thought was really great. And also yeah, uh, the great... head of story for Encanto, which came out just a couple mm. years ago. So that's a hit one with my wife's students. They love Encanto. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good movie. And I feel like there may be some other Simpsons connection to that movie as well. I can't remember exactly what it is, but and then it's written by a guy named Frank Mula, who is has unfortunately passed away in 2021. Yeah. But he also has a pretty cool track record. Again, not a name that you necessarily think of with no. The Simpsons, but he wrote I Love Lisa. Oh, damn. Yeah, the, exactly. <laughs> the episode where Ralph has a crush on Lisa. Very memorable episode. And also the last temptation of Homer with Homer and Mindy. Oh, shit. So like both of those right, are okay. 
just absolute bangers. Those are Stone Cold classics. Yeah. Those would definitely end up, not necessarily in my top 10, but it's certainly in my, many, many people would consider those top 10 episodes. Yeah, both of those episodes have a couple gags that live rent-free in my brain, right? Like, I choo-choo-choose totally. choose you, you know? I mean, that one's always going to be stuck up there. So, yeah, this episode. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not going to lie to you, yeah. Nate. It wasn't a particularly strong episode. Fair enough. Fair I, enough. As I said, I do remember watching it, and I, I remember the, like, gag at the end of the kicker kicking the ball and his leg ripping off and then the leg kicking the final field yeah, goal or whatever. I don't know about sports, so I don't know if those are the correct terms. But you got um, But I was kind of like, I chuckled a couple times. I think part of it is that at the risk of sounding unkind, but I feel like it's lacking in its traditional sort of satire it's mm. poking fun at the idea of faith healers but it doesn't seem to really have anything to say or that clear of a message about it yep. it's not as biting as they have been in the past it feels like it's just a means to an end and not like the writers necessarily have something that they want to try and say so it's not to say it's a bad episode or anything but it's just of the episodes that we've been watching or rewatching for the series, this has been the one that kind of did the least for yeah. me. Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, I think it kind of just lacks a little substance, you know, and it, it could mm -hmm. be that they could go harder on faith healing sort of stuff. Although it actually kind of seems like they're pretty weirdly pro, you know? <laughs> well, that's what I mean, though. It's like right? it's not like... really taking the piss out of it. There's actually like very little in this to suggest that the faith healer isn't actually healing people. Which is kind of wild right. for The Simpsons. Usually they think everyone's full of shit, right? Um, exactly. They, you know, but in this, it's kind of like they kind of act like, yeah, maybe he is actually healing people. And Bart gains some faith in Christianity. We actually have a, a guest star. Don Cheadle <laughs> plays Brother Faith, which I, when I watched this, I had no idea that Don Cheadle was the guest star at all. I probably I'm not even sure if I no. would have known really who Don Cheadle was. I would have known him probably loosely from Ocean's Eleven, but like not even because I I looked it oh. up. This the episodes from 2000. So the things that people would probably recognize him from was he had done Out of Sight, the Soderbergh movie, which is sort of right. his dry run for Ocean's Eleven. Sure. I think the same year he was also in Rush Hour 2, and then he was in Traffic. Traffic comes out in 2000. So that Got was it. sort of like the biggest thing that people would probably recognize wow. him from. But we wouldn't have seen Traffic no. at this point. So, no, there's no way we would have known who Don Cheadle right. was. So he's the faith healer that inspires Bart to become a faith healer as well. And when he heals people, he says, the power of faith compels you. Which is, yeah. of course, a parody of The Exorcist. Kind of like a weird, loose parody. And it's maybe the only thing that suggests that he's full of crap. Right. You know, he's not saying a prayer. He's stealing a line from a movie, basically. So, like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. that's the only that's the only thing that kind of gives you a sense of that. But the thing that I did like about this episode was the whole sort of, I guess, I don't know which is the A plot and which is the B plot, but Homer going back to Springfield University Calling back to that episode with all the nerds coming yeah. back and like playing with the very sort of limited continuity of The Simpsons was kind of a fun idea True. Um, and had had a few like good laughs. I really enjoy the scene where they go to the, the event at Springfield U and it turns out to be a fundraiser and they lock the doors and yeah. the chancellor comes over to shake down Homer and 
Homer refuses and he's like, Professor Rocco, Chancellor Knuckles. (laughs) Yeah, I like that. I was actually at a fundraiser a couple weeks ago. Yeah. And I think they made a similar joke of like, (laughs) all right, we're locking the doors. Like, you're not leaving until this silent auction's over. Yeah. Yeah. And like the Homer with the bucket on his head and when Bart's like drilling the eye holes. Too far. uh, And there's a great sound effect. Uh, Again, highly underrated sound design on this show just in general. Totally. And then the gag of him driving. Yeah, the point of view shot through the bucket. (laughs) And you're seeing what I love that. I mean, that's also like just one of those moments where you're like, yeah, the animation in the show is good. Like, it's not just like proscenium sort of stuff. Even at this point, that's a pretty creative idea. And the joke is 100 percent visual, basically, you know. Yeah, 100 percent. Yeah. And we get a great classic sort of Simpsons musical number, yeah. uh, which I was enjoying, you know. Yeah. I was a sinner, a real bad kid. What thou shalt not, I shall did. Neighbor's cat, I tried to neuter. Took a whiz on the school computer. He took a whiz, oh yes he did. It feels like, again, kind of the latter day, you know, version of that, mm-hmm. too, where it's like, it's pretty good, but it's not the funniest moment in the episode, and it's not even, like, the best visual musical number either. Yeah, and it's not even really driving the story. Right? It's just break for a musical yeah, number. Yeah, yeah, Which is, again, it's fine. I always enjoy the Simpson musical numbers. Yeah. We, did, we literally did an entire season of it. Yeah. But it's certainly not, again, a, a top ten musical number in, in the history of the right. show. You pointed out it is the name of the last Simpsons soundtrack album, essentially, that they put out. Yeah, yeah. They put out Testify, and I'm pretty sure it's the only one that didn't place on the charts. So, yeah. And I. That was the end. So I own the first Mm -hmm. one. And then a friend of mine in grade school got the second one and recorded it to cassette for me. So I had that. And then this was the one that I just never really bothered to track down because, you know, I think it came out. When we were in university or like Probably. close to when the the movie came out. So at that point, I was sort of like, I'm less interested in this. I don't need this. Yeah. And then there's another really bizarre gag, which you wrote down. And I'm glad you wrote it down because I also noticed it. <laughs> and I was like, OK, what's going on here? Which is the very, very long pause after Lenny says, you're just calling us a cow college because we were founded by a cow. Yeah. And it's one of those things where I'm like. <laughs> is this supposed to be a joke or are they just padding at the episode? Or both. <laughs> Where they're or like, both. it's funnier if you just watch Lenny blink for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a bizarre moment that I was just like, Okay, it was memorable. It could be one of those things where they're just in the writer's room and they're like, and what does Homer say back? And they just sat there for like six hours being like, What does he say back? What does he say back? And then someone's just like, Maybe he says nothing, and they're like, We're going with it. <laughs> You know, good enough. Let's get lunch. Yeah, exactly. That moment is really bizarre, but kind of funny. I (laughs) laughed just because it was really out of place. And then the other funny thing I kind of noticed near the end of the episode is like Bart basically becomes this faith healer and then he like everything up and decides not to do it anymore. But then in the big game, Anton Levchenko gets run over by (laughs) Homer's float while Homer is drunk and Bart is convinced to try to heal his leg. And in this, sorry, I, I hate to interrupt you, yeah. but Lisa has a great line of poor daddy is such terrible luck when he's drunk. Yeah. <laughs> See, there are some good one liners in this episode. There's some good, yeah, say. there's some, definitely some good moments. I'm yeah. not, I'm not yeah. saying the episode is without jokes. Yeah. But. Yeah. It just did not quite at the same level, but then Bart is back, uh, what, not backstage, uh, behind what in the locker room. There you go. That's what you call it. Yeah, sure. Sports. There you go. Sports. Um, <laughs> 
he's in the locker room trying to heal Anton Levchenko. And I was immediately thinking about the karate kid because he even does oh, the whole totally. sort of like yeah, yeah, he's yeah, like yeah, praying yeah. and then he puts his hands on him. Yeah, it's exactly yeah. like that scene in the karate kid. Don't think it's a reference or anything, oh, but it just it just reminded me of that instantly. So that was kind of funny. Right. Totally. OK, let's jump into it. So the exorcist. Uh Let's let's start how we always start. Nate, how would you sum this movie up in a sentence? Okay. Okay. Um, let's see. A young girl develops a mysterious mm. um behavioral illness and after mm. medical science fails her, her mother decides to pursue an exorcism. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that definitely sort of sums it up. It's an interesting way that you phrased it. I have a feeling that I know where we're going to, the conversation's <laughs> potentially going to lead. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, rewatching it, there was so much that I had forgotten about the movie, partly because of the parodies. I feel like I've forgotten all of the nuances and moving pieces of this movie because of what gets parodied, right? Those sorts of parodies are what makes me think of this movie as basically being all about the exorcism. But like the exorcism and even the demon stuff is a pretty small part of this movie. It's probably like half the movie. Yeah. Well, I mean, less than uh, that. We'll get into it. But I mean, you know, the the titular exorcist does not show up proper until like the final 20 minutes of the movie of a two hour movie. Yeah. Right. Like, so the exorcism itself is like the last 14 minutes of the film, I believe. God, is that it? Uh, it's pretty much, yeah. Like, it's a very, very short amount. Now, obviously, the possession stuff is, like Longer. you said, probably about half the film. Yeah. But to that point, Nate, what is your background with this movie? When did I, you first yeah. see it? Do you remember when you first see it? saw it? It's a good question. I think I probably saw it when we were living together in college. Nope. You, I know when I you, know when you first saw you it. You know when I first saw it. Oh, tell me. I, yeah. I couldn't remember. And so it would have been, like, grade... I guess it was probably grade 10. Okay. You and Sean came to my house on Halloween and we rented The Exorcist. Oh. And the DVD was not available, so we actually <laughs> rented the letterbox to VHS. All right. Because I wasn't going to rent no standard VHS. <laughs> no, we of course rented not. the letterbox to VHS. I was like, oh, we got to stay up late and start it at midnight because that's when it would be spookiest. Forgetting that the first hour of this movie is a little <laughs> bit slow. Yeah. And I think I might have fallen asleep. <laughs> but yeah, you first saw it in my basement in probably like 2003-ish. Um, oh, my God. And, and then when we were in university, we did go and see that screening at what is now the Hot Doc Cinema was then the Bloor Cinema. We yep. saw that like original 35 millimeter print that was so badly faded that it basically was just tinted red, but somehow made the movie <laughs> that much creepier. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. That cinema back in the day was... It was like just holding on by a thread in a lot of ways. It felt Literally. like put together with duct tape. But yeah, that was sort of the memory that I had. But I had forgotten completely about the high school memory of that. Because I what I remember is like my parents, I don't think, are into this at all. Like my mom would have right. hated The Exorcist and never probably never. Yeah, yeah no. So I knew I hadn't seen it any younger than that, but I'd just totally forgotten about that. That's very interesting. So do you want to know how I first saw it? Tell me. Because that was not when I first saw it. So, okay. So my history with The Exorcist, I believe it was like Entertainment Weekly or one of these sort of like, not gossipy, but like 
that was kind of like, well, dentist office magazines, because my dad was a dentist and this magazine was at the office and he knew he was a big movie buff. And so he brought it home and it was just, I think it was probably covering like the hundred best movies of all time. There was some reason why this magazine was covering a whole host of movies. Sure. So there were sections through it. And one of the sections was about the scariest movies ever made. Mm-hmm. And I vividly remember this portion because it had a shot from Nightmare on Elm Street. Yep. It had a shot of Nev Campbell on the phone from Scream. Oh, fantastic. And it had this very, very creepy image of possessed Reagan. Mm. And I have this like visceral memory of the image on the page. And I was just sort of like fascinated by it. And my babysitter at the time, she saw me reading it or whatever. And I guess I must have like brought up, I was like, oh, have you seen this? Have you seen this? Have you seen this? She's like, oh, The Exorcist, that's the scariest movie I've ever seen. I've never made it through the whole thing. I've tried multiple times. I've always had to turn it off. It's the scariest movie ever made. Wow. And so I was just sort of like, oh, like this is something unique. Like this is an adult who cannot make it through this movie. Right. It's so scary. And so I think it placed this like fascination with this movie in me from a very early age. I was probably like, 10 or 11 years old. Mm-hmm. I mean, I must have been because I was having a babysitter at this time. So it was then a couple years later. It was the summer between grade 9 and 10. My mom broke her leg. I think you probably remember this. My mom broke her leg and I basically spent the entire month of August homebound. I could not go anywhere because all of my friends <laughs> lived like in part of darkness. City. Yeah, basically, except for the fact that I was not broken. <laughs> right. Uh, but all of my friends lived in a different city. Mm-hmm. I couldn't go see them because my bride was no longer available my mom could not drive and my dad was working and so to make up for it my parents would take me to blockbuster on friday and i would just rent a ton of movies like 10 movies in a week and i I would just spend my week watching movies and so this one weekend this is the craziest set of movies and it was a life-changing weekend (laughs) but it was seven david fincher's seven david fincher's fight club requiem for a dream (laughs) Snatch, and The Exorcist. (laughs) And you had never seen any of those before? Never seen any of these. And the craziest thing was that you could also play Six Degrees of Separation between all of them, because it was like Brad Pitt was in Snatch, who was also in Seven, who was also in Fight Club, who was in Fight Club with Jared Leto, who was in Requiem for a Dream, which also starred Ellen Burstyn, who was in The Exorcist. So it was this weird thing of like all of these movies were like... I was like, how are you going to get to The Exorcist? Yeah. Yeah. So they're all interconnected. And anyway, so The Exorcist, I think, was probably the last one I watched. I was sort of like building up to it. I was in my basement by myself. And I was going to watch it in the dark. And I like I turn the movie on and you get that like opening score over the like red titles. And I was like, I'm going to go turn on a light because I was (laughs) I just I I knew I knew I was going to be creeped out. So I left the like one light this sort of at the side of my basement off to the side. So it was that. My area was dark, but there was like a little bit of light Mm -hmm. on. And I just remember this unrelenting sense of dread. Because what I didn't know was that, yeah, you don't get to the exorcism until the last 20 minutes of the movie. And really, so much of the movie is build up. It is tension building. And yes, there are crazy things that sort of happen along the way. But despite its reputation of being the scariest movie of all time and having these incredible, terrifying scenes, they're actually very few and far between. Yeah. And it's mostly build up. It's, it's mostly tension building. Generally, it's like, you know, those moments of terror are sometimes literally like a shot of like one or two seconds. 
And but and yep. up until and that then, point, it's like quiet, 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 and then something horrifying will happen, and then it'll go, and, and then, then it'll go back. back to quiet, quiet, quiet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I will never forget that first viewing, mm-hmm. that underlying sense of dread. And I think probably realistically, at the end of it, I was like, okay, well, that wasn't as scary as people had made it out to yeah. be. Of course, you know, I'm also watching it at this point. It would have been 25, almost 30 years since its release, but I do vividly remember. That tension building, that thing that our high school film teacher talked about, you know, ratcheting up tension, releasing it a little bit, ratcheting it up again, releasing Mm -hmm. it a little bit, ratcheting it up again. It is a film that perfectly understands how to build tension. Yeah. And so to that point, I wanted to sort of ask you a question before we dig into this. Shoot. You know, obviously the film is long considered to be a horror movie. It's considered by many to be the greatest horror movie ever made. But what I was sort of fascinated by when I was doing all my research was that the the filmmakers do not consider this movie to be a work of horror. Mm. If anything, they consider it to be a psychological thriller. So I'm just curious what your take on that is. Do you consider it? Because it's funny, you know, people refer to Silence of the Lambs. It's like the only horror movie that's ever won the Academy Award for Best Picture. And I'm like, that's not a horror movie. That's a, that's yeah. a, that's a thriller. To me, that seems clear cut. I don't think that's a horror movie. I mean, I'm sure people can make the argument, but to me, that is more clearly a thriller what I would say is, I'll harken back to our King Kong episode with Dee Dee Crimmins. Uh. And she gave us a great definition of horror movies, which was about yep. normalcy and monsters and the relationship right. between the two. And I think if you use that, to me, this is clearly a horror movie because it has a quite yep. a literal monster in it. And Ar- arguably the monster, right. although if you dig into it, it's, it's not the devil. So, but still, right, yeah. Right. It, but like what I would say, though is that I don't find this movie very scary. Right. I love this movie. I think this movie is great, but I actually don't find it that scary. So if that's your definition of what horror is, you know, your mileage may vary, I guess. But again, like King Kong to me being horror suggests to me that like maybe that's just not the point. Like you don't necessarily have to have moments of terror, genuine terror or jump scares or whatever in order for it to be a horror movie. So to me, it leans more in that direction, mostly because of the the very strong supernatural elements, right? To me, like right. a psychological thriller <laughs> usually is pretty grounded in reality. And this movie tries to be, but it also does have a demon in it. So, you know, to be clear. But I mean, it's interesting that you would say supernatural elements because the author of this anyways, not necessarily the director, but the author of this would not consider this to be a supernatural story. Mm. In fact, that is the opposite of what he was trying to do, but he's also a devout Catholic, and I think that's sort of right. where the separate the, the line in the sand is sort of going to change your perception sure. of, of it's this film. It's not supernatural and I think it's if, probably... you, if you believe in God, and you believe in the devil, and you exactly. believe in all those things, exactly. then it's just reality, but you know, for yeah. me, as someone who is not a believer, definitely feels a little supernatural to me. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny that that did remind me when we were in our grade 12 high school film literature class mm. and we all had to like pick a film and then force the class to watch it. And I picked The Exorcist. Oh. And again, it was interesting to watch this film in a well, watching this movie in a classroom setting was interesting in and of itself. <laughs> but because you had a very wide range of viewpoints. Sure. And there was a person in the class, I'm not going to say their name, but she was a devout Catholic and she found this film borderline impossible to watch. She was cowering in her seat watching it while the rest of the class was sort of like, what is this hokey shit? 
And so it is very interesting. And and one of the things the director says in his commentary and in, in documentaries and in, has continued to say, it's one of the few things he has actually said and kept consistent with, with over the years, is The Exorcist is a film that you take from it what you bring to it. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it. Because obviously, this movie's celebrating its 50th anniversary. Tons has been said about it over the years. And coming at this from this lens of, 50 years later, how does it hold up? Sure. Does it hold up? Does it still work? That's sort of how I want to frame all of this conversation mm-hmm. tonight. So with that being said, for people who maybe haven't seen the movie, which to me seems impossible, but I suppose there are still people, people out there who lots haven't. Lots of people probably refuse to see this movie, though. It, I mean, that may be part of it, too. So tracking down a sort of historical synopsis of this was not easy. The old VHS copies of the film were... Um, the, the blurb was more about the making of the film huh. than the film itself. Weird. So I, I did manage to track down the press kit for the extended version you've never seen that was re-released in 2000. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk all about that later. But thankfully, the, the premise does not change in the extended version. Other things do. But the, the underlying concept is the same. So I'm going to read this in my best horror movie trailer voice. <clears throat> in a quiet neighborhood, in a house with all the modern conveniences... An innocent young girl becomes afflicted. Her mother can't help her. Doctors uselessly test and attempt to treat her. In desperation, fearing her illness reaches beyond the physical and into the spiritual, her mother calls a priest. But even he doubts that evil has come into their home, into her body. And the more he doubts, the more powerful it becomes. There is only one cause and only one hope for a cure. What an excellent day for an exorcism. Ooh. Ooh, spooky. Spooky. That's interesting. That's a pretty well-written uh, yeah, yeah, it's very well know, written. summary, I would say. <laughs> you know, they're very literary. Like, and the more he doubts, the more powerful it becomes. Uh-huh. That's almost kind of like a thesis about this movie rather than a summary. I mean, yeah, that's sort of a 100% is a thesis of this film. Again, depending on who you ask. Right. So... Well, let's sort of get into the background of how this yeah. film tell me, comes about. Tell me so, about the story. I mean, you, you seem to have uh, not only done a lot of research on this, but it's clearly a movie that's near and dear to your heart. So take me through Well, it's it. funny. It's one of my favorite film critics, Mark Kermode, who I've been following since high school, and he made a documentary about this film that was on the 25th anniversary DVD, mm-hmm. a documentary called Fear of God. It is magnificent. Seek it out. This is his favorite movie of all time. And so in a weird way from listening to him for like 20 years talk about The Exorcist and like what a masterpiece it is, it's kind of like seeped into my bones that like, oh, yeah, 100 percent. This is a masterpiece. But going into this rewatch, I was like, I haven't watched this movie in years. Like, mm. it, is it really as good as I remember? But anyway, I feel like The Exorcist is just this thing that I know a lot about. So the origins of this, it was based on a book written by a guy called William Peter Blatty. And I don't know if you're familiar with William Peter Blatty, but really. what may surprise you is that prior to writing The Exorcist, he was not known for writing horror fiction. Oh. He was actually known for writing comedies. Huh. And his best known work is the Inspector Clouseau movie, A Shot in the Dark. Oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. Not what you would expect from the guy who wrote Your Mother Sucks Cocks in Hell. Um, so... <laughs> Just kidding. This movie is remarkably funny for how horrifying some of the stuff in it is. But um, he says comedy writing had dried up and he kind of wanted to prove that he could, quote, write respectably in another medium. 
Okay. And so he was sort of trying to figure out, like, what am I going to write about? What am I going to write about? He studied at Georgetown University, which is run by Jesuit priests. So, Mm -hmm. like, you know, he's deeply rooted in Catholicism. And he was talking to one of his advisors about Rosemary's Baby, which had just recently come out. And he's like, I wish I could write something like that. Hmm. And the guy was like, well, you should, but, you know, without all the ooga-booga stuff, you should make it real. Hmm. Like, make people understand that there is really good and actual evil in the world. Hmm. Again, from this lens of Catholicism, this is a priest saying yeah. this, right? So he says, yeah, I think that's what I want to do. I want to I try and tell this story that sort of unpacks the idea of good and evil in the world. And he was actually inspired by a real-life case of demonic possession that happened in the 1940s. And when he was doing research about it, he actually got in touch with the priest who conducted the exorcism, who said, like, I I wish I could tell you more information, but I'm, like, barred from it. I've gone to the head of the church. They won't let me because the family says no. Like, they don't want to get involved. Which Blatty says, like, at that point, I became more convinced than ever that this was legitimate because they weren't seeking fame. They were running from it. Now, me being the skeptic, I'm going... Or they didn't want anybody, like, actually scratching the surface <laughs> of this because the more people looking into it, the more people might start to go, well, this is a load of horseshit. Right. But anyway, all this is said. So he writes the book, comes out in 1971, and it's not super successful on release. Hmm. But what ends up happening is one of my favorite talk show hosts, Dick Cavett, has a last-minute cancellation. And so they call up Blatty, and they're like, can you come on the show and talk about your book? And he's like, uh, yeah, sure. So wow. he ends up spending 45 minutes talking about the book, and the audience and at-home viewers were so enthralled that basically by the next week, the book shot to the top of the New York Times bestseller <laughs> oh my list. God. And uh, it sold over 13 million copies in the U.S. alone, which by 1971 standards is apparently like gangbusters. Yeah. Like that's just sort of unheard of. So naturally, they want to make it into a movie. Warner Brothers approaches Blatty. He's going to write the screenplay. He's going to produce. So he comes at it and says, like, I want to get a serious director. You know, I don't want someone who's going to treat this like it's a horror movie, Mm -hmm. like a genre picture. I want to treat this with documentary realism. And having just seen The French Connection, he's like, I know the perfect guy for this job. Billy Friedkin. And it's funny, he talks about how he had actually met Friedkin a couple years earlier. He had co-written the script with Blake Edwards, who he had made A Shot in the Dark with. He was making a film adaptation of the TV show Peter Gunn, and they were trying to hire Friedkin for that. And Friedkin came in and basically said, no, I don't want to do this. Like, this script sucks. (laughs) It's basically an extended TV episode. Like, you can do better than this. Like, this is a piece of shit. And Edwards was highly offended. It was like, get the (laughs) out of here. You will not be directing this. Whereas Blatty was like, I kind of respect this yeah, guy. Challenge but, accepted. Yeah, he's not going to get the job now, but like he's coming out and saying like the script isn't very good. So he knew that there was something to this guy. Mm-hmm. Now, the studio, on the other hand, they were not so interested in Billy Friedkin. They wanted Mark Rydell, Arthur Penn, Stanley Kubrick, oh. or, and this is the one that will blow your mind, Mike Nichols. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so, okay, so interesting. Connecting some dots, mm-hmm. though. So, like, this yes. is the same moment when Mike Nichols is looking for a way out of his contract. Uh-huh. And he ends up choosing Day of the Dolphin. Uh-huh. Inst- well, he did, He maybe he didn't have the choice, but he ends up doing Day of the Dolphin instead of The Exorcist. The Exorcist, <laughs> yes, exactly. So there is a potential in the multiverse of madness. There's a potential the Mike world Nichols the version Exorcist of The Exorcist. Versus, yeah, exactly. Which may also be yeah, a bomb, just given where where he was and where everything that was going on. Written by Buck Henry. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, and this is the other thing to keep in mind is that Friedkin hadn't yet won the Oscar for The French Connection mm. because presumably had he had been Academy Award winner William Friedkin right. and Blatty comes and says, I want Billy Friedkin, they would have jumped at the opportunity. But at this point, he's just sort of seen as like this abrasive guy, yeah. Chicago guy who's like made this crazy police procedural movie like, no, we're not going to hire him anyway. So he ends up getting the gig. And uh, he wasn't sure he wanted to do it at first, and he he gets the book, and he goes home that night, and he starts reading it, and apparently, he, you know, he starts reading it at, like, 10 p.m., and doesn't end up putting it down, and the next morning immediately calls the producers and says, yes, I, hmm. I'm in. Like, I want to do this. And so he meets with Blatty, and Blatty surprises him with a copy of a screenplay. He says, like, hey, here's surprise. I've got my first draft ready to go. And Friedkin goes, OK, great. Like, I'll take this home and I'll read it and I'm sure it's going to be brilliant. And he starts reading it and he says it was absolute garbage. Uh, he describes it as being filled with flashbacks and hacky horror tropes mm. and nothing like the book, which he said was very, very straightforward, took everything seriously. It read like the documentation of an event that happened. Right. And not like a screenplay. Yeah. He basically said to Blatty, he's like, sorry, this is garbage. Go back to square one. In fact, I've got an idea. And he basically starts doing what Coppola did with The Godfather, which was he takes his copy of the novel and every night he sort of pours through it and highlights passages and lines of dialogue and basically helps say to Blatty, yeah, keep this. You don't need this. You don't need this, but you do need this. And they basically rework the script into the form that we have today. Interesting. Now, along the way, they have to delete a number of subplots, Mm -hmm. including the relationship between Karis and Detective Kinderman, which was apparently much more fleshed out in the book, Hmm. um, which explains Exorcist 3. All of this makes a lot more sense, their relationship, because it's much deeper in the book than it is in the film. Apparently, the book makes it a lot more ambiguous for a lot longer whether or not Reagan is possessed. Sure. Like, it really plays up this idea of, like, well, maybe it is just a physical... Or mental affliction. Well, the movie, even though she looks wild, like in the middle of the movie, right? (laughs) Like, obviously. But when Karis is first visiting with her, you're still like, I don't know. Because she says some, made some comment about his mother, right? And she's like, oh, well, if she's down in there with you, you must know her maiden name. And instead, I think Reagan just vomits on him at that point or something like that, right? (laughs) Yeah, she deflects. And so it's like, there is that deflection, right, that does Mm -hmm. happen in the middle of the movie where it's like, as an audience member, you're like, look, I saw her when she wasn't possessed and now she looks like an animal. And so so it's like, clearly there's something more than just like a medical affliction, but they're still sort of playing with that in the middle of the movie, which I really appreciate. I love that ambiguity. And in the extended director's cut, they actually introduce, there's a, there's another scene sort of in the first act where Chris goes, is actually visiting a doctor and sort of having her diagnose some of this weird behavior that Reagan has been having, mm-hmm. which it fleshes out this idea of, is it or is it not a little bit earlier? Yeah. The only problem I have with it is that you don't ever see any of this weird behavior from Reagan prior to this doctor's visit. So it kind of feels like it comes out of nowhere because up until that point, she just seems like a normal 10-year-old. So the version I saw, this is a good point to bring it up. So I rewatched this movie in theaters because it was re-released for its 50th. Yeah. Along with a new, yet another re-release that's like been (laughs) tinkered with, right? 
And oh boy, has it ever. Yeah, and so the version that I watched is this version that you're talking about. It's the ex- Oh, I it, believe it's It was the extended version. I believe so. It's the director's cut for sure cuz I checked the ending, but okay. I believe it has that scene in it along yes. with all of the other sort of extended material like uh the spider walk. The spider walk, the... yep. Okay. All yeah, of that yeah. stuff. That's sort of the easiest way to know which version you're watching. It, 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 does the spider walk happen? Then you're watching yeah, the extended yeah, yeah. cut. Which is a great addition. I'm all for the spider walk. Look, I, <laughs> I this has been my long running thing of like, which version do I prefer? And I watch. So on Halloween, I watched my new 4K director's cut. And then rewatching for the podcast, I watched the theatrical cut. And I, I, I still don't know which version I prefer. But we're going to talk about them more. Yeah, yeah at the end Sounds so good. but that's basically the background this is how it all sort of came to be friedkin very much brings this approach of i want to tell this story with documentary realism yep. very very straightforward he says i'm more interested in spontaneity than perfection i want no flashbacks just a straight ahead story that is done as realistically as possible yeah and i think that's the magic that makes this film work absolutely is that approach it's the fact that it's not lit like a horror movie yep. it's lit pretty mundanely for the most part unless you're watching it's, the most recent version <laughs> well unless you're watching yeah, well there that, is that's there is the main thing that they tinkered with was the color balance in these scenes yeah the color timing is a little bit bonkers, so so you but... have like you know when they're in the room it's like all blues and when they're in the church it's yeah. all reds and it's uh yeah, I, I will say in theaters, it didn't bother me as much, but I can imagine watching it at home. You'd be like, this is cartoonish. <laughs> it's one of the most mixed bag 4K restorations I've seen, yeah. because there are moments where I'm like, this has never looked better. It looks absolutely stunning. Yeah. And then there are moments where I'm like, this looks like absolute dog I, shit. I think it looked fine for me. But the main problem is that it does kind of go against what you're describing, which is mm-hmm. that sort of sense of documentary realism of like, you know, the lighting is not um, dramatic, right? And nope. so don't mess around with the lighting, the color, all those things. Let it feel like real life because that's what makes this movie, if not f- like frightening, disturbing, you know, is yeah, that it feels 100%. like real life. And that's the thing. That's the magic. I totally agree with this movie. You obviously did most of the, the background research on this, but one thing I wanted to dig into was just this release date. Why the hell did this movie come out on December 26th? And so I found an article on IndieWire by Tom Brugman. Okay. And basically what he said was like, probably they were thinking about Christmas Day as right. a popular day to go to the movies. Um, Which to this day, it still, still is. is. And so therefore a popular day for releases. But then they were like, we can't, we cannot release this movie on Christmas Day it is potentially sacrilegious and at the very least yeah. not something that people are probably going to choose when they have other options. And so they probably just bumped it from Christmas Day to Boxing mm. Day on the schedule. And we're like, you know what? It's still probably going to like do pretty well. And we're avoiding the potential controversy of it coming out on Christmas Day. And apparently Friedkin was very pissed off about <laughs> about this release date. Kind of not surprising. Well, that sounds like apparently he probably wanted uh, to follow the Godfather strategy. You know, you already brought up that he was already kind of using the sort of filmmaking process of that as inspiration. And Godfather came out in March uh, right. and had this sort of small release and, and then grew from there. And so he was pissed off that it came out the day after Christmas. But, you know, as we know, the strategy worked, right? 
Yeah. Um, people still saw it. It came out, I think, on a Wednesday. So that was the day when movies came out back then. And right. so by the time the next Wednesday rolled around, it was like gaining momentum. They they started with a few theaters and then built up and up and up and up. Uh, and it became, well, we'll get there. But it was successful, <laughs> right? So I just thought that was kind of interesting of like, you know, this idea of like, well, maybe it should come out on Christmas. Um, Could you imagine? No. Like the... I. <laughs> uproar it's just wild it's yeah it's utterly wild. i mean it might have worked again, too because it would have been so controversial yeah. but yeah as if this movie needed any more controversy yeah. to be honest well, but. well that's the thing too is that like you gotta wonder too like whether they were just like let's just like dump this thing you know well the, and they talk about this in the documentary of like the studio had no idea what they had on their right. hands and the head of the publicity department basically was like look guys i saw the same movie as you all i know is that the movie has ended like an hour ago and people are still in the lobby talking about wow. it. And I that does not happen. Yeah. Yes, this movie's going to rattle some cages, but you have a genuine hit on yeah. your hands. And, you know, again, this is 1973. The blockbuster yeah. tentpole, fit, none of that stuff is really solidified yet. Right. Like the industry is changing. And this is coming out of that new Hollywood period that we spoke a lot about in our last couple episodes, you know. So... It made sense that the studio really didn't know how this was going to do. Yeah, this is yet you know, another they thought one maybe where it's like you got to wonder if they even knew quite how to market it. But it seems like yeah. it, 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 that didn't really hurt this one. This one was just word of no. mouth and it was so different, so shocking that people were talking about it. And I mean, uh, the book uh, was a bestseller. So right. like, they kind of knew they they had some juice from that. But I again, they kind of were like, eh, it's just going to be another Rosemary's Baby. They did not realize it was going to become like the absolute sensation and stone cold classic that it subsequently became. So totally be before we dig more into the themes and ideas and highlights and lowlights of the film, I, I do want to talk about the cast because I think part of what makes the film work so well is Friedkin's directorial style. But I think it also has a lot to do with this absolutely sensational cast. Totally, uh, starting yeah. with our, I guess, kind of our hero protagonist, Ellen Burstyn, mm -hmm. as Chris McNeil. So the studio originally wanted someone like Jane Fonda or mm -hmm. Anne Bancroft, although Anne Bancroft ended up getting pregnant, so they couldn't hire her. The person they were most interested in, believe it or not, was Audrey Hepburn. And oh, Hepburn was willing to do it, but she was living in Rome at the time, and she said she would only do it if they shot everything in Rome. And Friedkin was like, no, we're not going to do that. That's that's you. And uh, Blatty wanted he had based the character of Chris McNeil on his very, very good friend, Shirley MacLaine. So okay. there was sort of talk of like, do we get a Shirley MacLaine type, whatever? He said she needed to be ordinary, even though she's an actor. She needed to have this sort of sense of normalcy so that you wouldn't believe what was going to happen. Right. Which I don't think, again, like if you had had an Audrey Hepburn or whatever, it just kind of, it's the Meryl Streep problem. It's like, well, you're, right. She'd be you're Audrey, Audrey Hepburn. Hepburn. You're Meryl Streep. Exactly. It wouldn't work. You kind of needed a quasi unknown. Ellen Burstyn had been in the last picture show, the Peter Bogdanovich movie. Sure. Um, but she wasn't real, like she wasn't a household name by any means, but she really wanted this role. And she called up Friedkin and said, like, I read the script. Like, I really think that I'm right for this part. Like, I think this is a movie I should be in. Mm -hmm. And he said, OK, well, you know, there's like I'm the studio wants me to talk to this other actress. She's sort of top of mind and kind of who we're gunning for. I'm flying to New York to meet her, but I'll keep you in mind. And I, I want to play a clip from this Fear of God documentary that I mentioned that Mark Kermode made of Ellen Burstyn talking about what then transpired after Billy 
met the other actress in, in New York. He called me from New York and said, all right, you've got the part. And I said, oh, you saw her? And he said, no, I ran into her in the deli last night, and she looked like hell. And I said, well, Billy, that's not fair. I look like hell in the deli, too. And he said, well, that's the way the cookie crumbles. (laughs) (laughs) So there you go. She got the part because the other girl looked like hell. But, you know, again, it's one of those, like, serendipitous pieces of casting because I think she... She's the glue that holds this whole thing together. This yeah. whole film rides or dies based on this performance, and she gives an absolutely remarkable one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what I would say is that, you know, to your point about her being ordinary, I think, like, her sort of driving characteristic is that she's a parent. And, yep. like, that is the thing that's so relatable, I think, is just the sense of, like, there's something wrong with my child and I am trying to figure out what's wrong with my child and I will do anything. I, I don't give a shit about what is, you know, true yeah. or not, what's scientific or not. Like if it's not working, I am going to stop doing that. I'm going to find something else. Right. And just like yeah. she sells the hell out of that and you really see, you know, how much she cares, her fear. It's very relatable. And like, that's exactly what that role has to do in order for this to work. Yeah. She has that great line of like, you show me Reagan's exact double and I would know that it's not my daughter. And I'm telling you that yeah. thing up there is not my daughter. I, I will yeah. say watching this movie now as a parent, it's very differently than it did as a 13 year old. I'm sure. Uh, and speaking of the daughter, that brings us to Linda Blair, who plays Reagan, which I, again, it's crazy. Like basically freaking said the studio was like, well, there's no like star child actors, so like hire whoever you want. <laughs> That's uh, so crazy. And he's, and he's like, yeah, at that time, yeah, at that time. And he said, and the thing is, she's perfect, mm. and she is. And yep. the crazy thing is that her agency, because she had done like a couple little movies and like she was doing modeling gigs and mm. commercials and all this stuff. Her agency didn't even recommend her. It was her mother wow. who submitted her for the audition, and she said like they basically were like, we saw all these kids. Nobody really could do it. She walked in and just instantly they were like, yep, this is, well, you know, this the, is the one. The agency hadn't seen her crab walk down the stairs, so. <laughs> well, that was actually a stunt performer. But yes, you know, exactly. <laughs> um, part of why uh, allegedly Mike Nichols did not want to make the movie was he's like, you're not going to be able to find a kid who can do this. Mm. Like, you're asking the impossible. You're going to have to hire. I, I, <laughs> Says someone, the guy I who remember. ended up making a movie about talking dolphins. <laughs> Yes. I don't remember if it was Mike Nichols specifically, but someone was on the record of being like, what are you going to do? Like, you're going to have to hire a little person to play this role because like no child is going to be able to do this. And fair enough. But they somehow managed to find the one child who actually could pull it off. And holy shit, does she ever. Now, she is dubbed by another actor, an actor named Mercedes McCambridge. Part of why... I think it works so well is those early moments in the film where you see her pre-possession where she is just like a little kid and she sells it so well. You know, she steals cookies from the cookie jar. She's doing little arts and crafts and she's adorable and charming and you fall in love with her instantly. And then they put her through literal hell and you're just sort of like they do a really good job of like selling who she is and also her relationship with her mother without almost any clear exposition. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. No one, no one's like talking about that time when blah, blah, blah. It's just watching them live together and, you know, screw around as, as people do, right. As families do. It's that documentary realism. Yeah. 
Yeah, and but it but it, it, it communicates so much about who she is, absolutely. what their relationship is, all of that. And then of course there's Father Karras, who is played by Jason Miller. And this is a character that again, I, I've now said this three times, but makes or breaks the film and right. is arguably, depending on who you speak to or who and the lens that you're looking at, is kind of the the main protagonist of the film. Yeah. The sort of the philosophy of the film re- revolves around Karis and what he goes through. Yeah, and and you know, like in the traditional sense of like he's the character that most clearly changes throughout the movie, right? Yes, and has a has a sort of hero's <laughs> journey. Uh, literally changes. Uh, yeah, yeah. The his question of doubt and faith and where mm-hmm. he lands, so to speak, <laughs> is the, <laughs> is the <laughs> oh. yeah high five. <laughs> You know, that's the crux of the sort of hero's journey in the story. You could make an argument, absolutely, I think, for Chris also having a hero's journey arc, but it's a lot subtler and a little bit harder to pin down exactly what her transformation is as a character. What was so interesting, again, in my research, was that Freakin very much wanted an unknown for this role. Like, again, the studio wanted, like, Jack Nicholson, and they're like, he's like, no, I can't. (laughs) Can you imagine? No. Can you can you imagine like it just no it would not work no. and Freakin said what he really really wanted was a priest who could act okay. that's what he was looking for wow. and Blatty himself wanted to play the role oh. and he apparently offered his entire percentage of profits in order to convince Friedkin to let him play the wow. role and Friedkin was like absolutely not no there's not a not a <laughs> Friedkin, Friedkin's a smart cookie <laughs> I mean he's an absolute <laughs> maniac. Yeah. But boy, he was a smart genius. and tough. Um, what's interesting, though, is that Miller was actually not who they originally cast. Mm. They had actually cast some an actor by the name name of Stacy Keach. OK, who are you familiar with Stacy? Uh, no, <laughs> uh, you, you've definitely seen a character actor. I think he was the warden in Prison Break. OK, um, never saw it. like you've definitely seen him in stuff. And he has a he has a very distinct voice. Okay, um, Face looks familiar. Yeah, like he's just he's a American character. History like he's X. One of, yeah, he's one of those guys. Like he's been in a ton of stuff, and when you eventually find the movie that you know him from, you'd be like, "Oh, it's that guy." Oh, so, you know where I know him from? This is ridiculous. I think he's the dad in Titus. Do you remember that show? Okay, I do remember Titus. I weirdly watched that show. <laughs> okay, well there you go. So yeah, so Stacy Keach was originally cast as Karis, but. I guess Friedkin was not 100% sold on it. And he he ended up seeing uh, a play called My Championship Season that was written by Jason Miller. And so he calls up Jason Miller and and Miller thinks, oh, they must want me to adapt the screenplay. And so he shows up for the meeting with Friedkin and says, like, okay, like, I guess I could do this. I've never really written a screenplay before. And they're like, no, 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 I, I want you to play this priest character. And he's like, um, no, like, I don't think so. And he basically, like, leaves the meeting. Hmm. And he then ends up getting a hold of the script or the book. I can't remember what, but basically he he reads the script and literally calls up Freak and says, sorry, I changed my mind. I, re- I read it. This is me. Like, this is 100% me. I like the lapse of Catholicism, huh. the self-doubt, all this stuff. Like, I am this character. I need to do it. And Freakin's like, sorry, you had your chance and you walked away. <laughs> and he's like, please, please, please let me screen test. Please let me screen test. And Freakin's like, Fine. You fly out to L.A. on your own dime and I'll screen test you. Wow. And he sort of is just like, ah, like I'll f- humor the guy. And so he shoots the the screen test. And during the screen test, Friedkin's like, this is a complete waste of my time and money. But like, whatever. Miller goes home. Friedkin develops the screen test and is watching it the next day. And he goes, shit, 
He's like, the camera loves this guy. And I can't lie. Like, he's the character. Yeah. Like, on screen. Like, I, this is the guy. And so he basically goes to Warner Brothers and was like, so I know you wanted Jack Nicholson. And they said no. And then we settled on Stacey Keach. But <laughs> you're going to have to buy out his contract because I want to hire this playwright. Jesus. And for whatever, I do, again, it's like 1973. I do not know how people were getting away with this yeah. shit. But the studio was like, okay. <laughs> and they bought out Stacey Keach's contract. And Jason Miller gets the role. It's crazy. I mean, like, I, I do wonder, like, what are they comparing this to where they're like, it's going to be worth it, you know? But it's also like, the they also don't seem that, maybe, but they also don't seem that convinced that, like, they keep saying, we're maybe going to get the next Rosemary's Baby. And Rosemary's Baby was, like, successful, but it wasn't crazy successful. Right. It wasn't The Godfather. Yeah. So I don't know why they were going for it. But yeah, so he basically got to hire three completely unknown actors wow. for the three sort of above the title sort of characters yeah. well and the interesting thing too about like linda blair and jason miller is it's like largely they're still most associated with this movie right for 100 percent. like linda blair went on and made a bunch of like hokey sort of 80s yeah. i think she made a couple like sex comedies mm -hmm. and she was in a parody with leslie nielsen called possessed sure. so like she's been riding these like many horror stars yeah. do they kind of ride the the coattails and then jason miller i think unfortunately like he suffered from alcoholism mm -hmm. and he does appear in in the theatrical cut of exorcist 3 by studio intervention right. or whatever but yeah like essentially never acts on film really ever i think he's done a couple other tiny roles but yeah this is essentially the one thing he's known yeah. for so and I, I think that adds to the specific magic of this movie that it's like it feels like this sort of isolated island of a movie that's not really like tied into it, the career yeah. of jack nicholson for example right where you're like <laughs> yeah, oh yeah exactly. that was that jack nicholson movie it's like no this is its own thing with its own cast that is pretty specific you know but i think it also helps that documentary realism is yeah. that like again you're seeing these people that you've never seen before mm -hmm. and may never ever see again on screen there's a part of you that maybe goes is this real like it's this innate yeah. sense that you have as an audience member because you're not seeing jack nicholson or it's not the tom hanks thing or the meryl streep yeah. thing of like well yeah this is good but that's meryl streep like she's acting mm -hmm. you kind of just buy it all yeah so really the only names that are in this movie is you have max von sydow yeah. or freaking refers to him as max von sydow so i don't i don't know the proper Swedish pronunciation, yeah yeah but okay yeah i could see so that. i think that is the swedish pronunciation but he's obviously best known for his films with ingmar bergman yeah. in sweden and the crazy thing is he was only 40 at the time he made this and he's playing 80. Wow. The, the, the craziest thing is that in my mind, Max von Sydow has always been this old right. because like the only movies I know him from are The Exorcist. And then when he shows up in that Star Wars movie, right. when he's actually 80 years old yeah. and he looks the exact same. So I'm like, he's just perpetually been 80 for 40 years. Exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. I don't have any other image of him in my brain basically as like a young and then man. and then of course eventually i see the bergman movies and i'm like oh no like there was a period where he was actually a very handsome young man right but it's just no in my mind he will always perpetually be 80 years old <laughs> but he's he is essentially kind of the the one star along with lee j cobb who plays lieutenant kinderman who is a famous character actor. He's in 12 Angry Men. He's like juror number three. Oh, okay. He's a legitimate like star of stage and screen. Right. But he sort of has this, not a cameo necessarily, but he's got like a much, much smaller role in the film. Yeah. 
As does Max von Sydow. Yeah, as we say, he's in the beginning and then he shows up for the last 20 minutes. Well, and then the last person I want to talk about is Mercedes McCambridge, mm-hmm. who does the voice of the demon and yeah. was not originally credited on the earliest run oh, of the film. Wow. Um, because Freak had thought she didn't want to be credited, huh. like so that she was just sort of, do- and she was like, no, I have. And she ended up suing Warner Brothers for credit. Fair enough. Um, but originally, they basically, like, again, much like the question of, like, how the hell are we going to find someone who can play this kid? Yeah. They kind of didn't know what to do with the voice. And Friedkin spent hours and hours working his, with his post-production team trying to digital, well, not digitally, <laughs> there's no computers, but, like, Filters. using techniques, yeah, to distort or enhance uh, Linda Blair's actual voice. Right. And he said all of it just sounded fake. Like, it sort of sounds like when you do the thing of, like, you slow your voice down and then you sound kind of like this. Right. And I'm the devil! He knew that he needed a voice that was not quite male, not quite female, but had male characteristics and female characteristics. And he said, like, who the hell sounds like mm-hmm. that? And he said a name popped into his mind's eye, which was Mercedes McCambridge, who had been in films but was sort of best known for her work in radio she'd been in a bunch of like Orson Welles radio plays so he contacts her she sort of comes out of semi-retirement and she does like all these insane things to get that voice she starts chain smoking she starts drinking again she was a a recovering alcoholic and she starts drinking Friedkin would strap her to chairs to sort of mimic the state that the character that Reagan was in on screen She would eat raw eggs and basically to get the sort of mucusy bile like sounds that were, you know, double and triple sounds coming out of her voice box to get, quite honestly, a very, very remarkable and memorable vocal performance that, again, originally was not even credited in the first run of the film, but is so, so, so important to, again, making this all work because it doesn't have that sort of digitally processed fake sound to it. It it does, you can tell this is human-esque. You know, it's coming out of a person. It's not being done through trickery. Right. Uh, and I think it helps. It's like there is a world where the actress Linda Blair is actually making that sound herself. Like it's, right, exactly. it's within the realm of possibility, much like the dolphins. Um, <laughs> you know, it <laughs> sort of feels like that's plausible. You know, it makes sense that it's I don't, I don't know how, but yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. OK, so let's now dig a little deeper into the film itself. And the film opens with this prologue. Right. Set in Iraq. What are, what are your thoughts on that, Nate? I, I mean, I love the prologue. I think it's great. Okay, I do too. I think, I, I, I really mean, number do. one, it just looks great. Like, it looks phenomenal. It looks especially so I, especially in the new, this new restoration. Yes. It, it looks incredible. Yes, seeing it in theaters with the new restoration, the cinematography looks so crisp. Like, and, and like way more crisp than the rest of the movie for whatever reason. Well. And I could I can maybe shed some light onto why that might be, but sure, go on. fair enough. But it looks incredible. It's very mysterious in terms of the plot and sort of what exactly is happening. What you're kind of getting, yeah. I feel like, especially the first time you watch this movie, is like, okay, there's this old guy. He's on a dig somewhere in a desert, <laughs> right? He finds a thing in Iraq of yes, all places, in Iraq. which of course. Again, it's this classic thing of watching something from before today. Like, yeah, Iraq does not have the connotations that it has now back in 1973. Right. It's just, oh, it's like this interesting desert loca- locale, whereas like 
even when I watched the movie for the first time in high school, I was like, Iraq? What are they doing in Iraq? Like, <laughs> yeah, totally. We, there's weapons of mass destruction possibly maybe <laughs> over there. Um, yeah. And it's, it's so like that's still going on. He finds this thing, right, which is like a face in the sand, a very small yep. face, and then kind of has like this weird standoff with a statue. And you get the sense that it's metaphysical in some way, right? The, the scene with the statue in particular is very, it's such a good example of how this movie works in that he's sort mm-hmm. of like standing there. He looks at the statue. He looks over at a man who's kind of looking at him ominously. He looks over at some dogs fighting, right? He looks back at the statue. You hear the dogs fighting over top of yeah. the statue and the statue's face is getting closer and the dogs are getting louder and then it cuts. That's the way this movie works, right? It's very kind of like Eisenstein, you know? It, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's this kind of yeah. montage, but he's doing it all narratively. But it's this montage of stuff kind of coming together in your brain to be like, this statue's alive somehow. And there's something more going on than the sum of its parts, right? Like, that's what that, that scene's all about. And I think it's kind of brilliant. But also, the first time you watch it, you're like, when that cuts back to wherever it starts the story again, you're like... In Georgetown, in Georgetown yeah, you're, you're like, like, what? <laughs> Wait, what does this have to do with what? anything? Um, yeah. No, it's all about tone setting. Yeah. It's all about setting the stage, both in terms of this is the style of what's going to happen, but it is setting the stage for this confrontation between priest and demon. Right, right. sort um, of foreshadowing. Friedkin in the commentary says, we introduced the idea that out of this ancient land that an archaeologist priest gets a premonition and he gets the realization that he will have to face the demon once again. Right. The prologue is in the book, and when the script was delivered to Friedkin, the prologue was not there, Mm -hmm. and the studio didn't want it there, and Blatty didn't think they needed it, and Friedkin's like, no, this is everything. Like, you need this scene. This is the crux of the movie right here. Like, you have to have this. So he really fought for it, and the studio, of course, was like, okay, fine, you can go shoot it in the desert in California. He's like, no, no, no. Like nothing, no, we have to go, we have to fly to Iraq to do this. And they're like, what do you mean we have to fly? No, like America doesn't have diplomatic relations with Iraq. So they actually shot it in Mosul, which is of course like the head of where like all of the stuff in weapons of mass destruction time was going on. Yeah, or not going on as the case may be. Well, yes, but it was actually, they were filming a real archaeological dig that was at the time being done by a German team. Mm -hmm. And it had to be shot with a different film crew. So it was Friedkin and a totally different crew that was entirely British because the U.S. had no diplomatic relations. And he basically said, like, if anything happened to me, like, I was screwed. Like, my country was basically disavowed my even existence. But one of the things that the Iraqis sort of said you had to do was, like, you have to teach our film crews, like, film techniques. And the one thing they really wanted to learn how to do was make fake blood. Oh, like that was the number one thing they wanted huh. to learn was like, how do you make movie blood? He's like, OK, I guess I can show you how to do that. So but yeah, this is something that he's done. Well, he did this in The French Connection. He does it again in Sorcerer. And I feel like he maybe <laughs> also does it in Cruising. I can't really remember. But this sort of seems to be the thing that he does is like there's always this prologue that on the surface seems kind of superfluous. But really is just about setting tone and setting the stage for the story that's about it's, to unfold. It's the Simpsons Act and, One. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> like, it really is the, the Simpsons slightly Act unrelated one. story that sets up the main story. <laughs> 
Yeah. And it's funny because it's also the thing that when I watch most movies, I would be like, oh, we can cut this. Like, we don't, right, we don't right, right. This. Like, but for whatever reason, I don't know what it is. It, it's Billy's magic. Like, it works so well for me. When I watched it that first time when I had the lights on, yeah. it sets this sense of something is not quite right. Right. Something bad is going to happen. I don't know what it is. I don't know who this guy is. I don't know what this <laughs> statue yeah. is. But I know it's not going to yeah. be good. And it's because- ominous and mysterious, which is what this movie is all about, right? And the exactly. contrast between quiet and loud and all that stuff. It's setting up everything in the movie. But yeah, at the same time, like, you come in to the next scene very disoriented. And so I can understand how, like, yeah, if you're the studio, you're like, what the f- what, what is this? This has nothing. The rest of the movie doesn't take place in Iraq. It has nothing to do with archaeology. What are you doing? Yeah. But like, I, yeah. I get it. And and it does mean that that character, that Max von Sydow character becomes a bookend, right? It's like yeah. you're introduced to him here. If you don't have that scene, then he's just some guy who shows up halfway through the movie or whenever later than that, yeah, two exactly. thirds of the way through the movie. And he's just some stranger. But like, instead you've already met him and you know that he's had this weird experience the other sort of connection point is the little necklace that Karis has yeah the saint joseph's medal. right saint yeah. joseph's medal i was looking into the lore of this of like he right. finds the necklace Karis is wearing a necklace like that later is it the same necklace yep. apparently yes it's not it's not the same necklace. Oh, okay. It, it's it's an it is an identical necklace, but in the lore of the Exorcist, it is a different necklace. Oh, interesting. Because again, and again, the, the one thing I learned in my research of this movie yeah. is that Billy Friedkin has changed his story. I'm sure many many times. I'm sure. But he sort of he talks about how he wanted that to sort of be ambiguous. Of like, how does this necklace that we see in Iraq end up around the neck of a priest at the end of the film? Right. So he he wants the audience to sort of be asking these questions i found a quote from blatty though that ah. was saying actually the question is the opposite it's not how did the uh. necklace get from iraq to the u.s it's why is there a modern necklace in an archaeological site interesting so okay. it's like but it, you know all that to say it's pretty ambiguous right but there's some well kind of and then not only that it appears halfway through the film during karis's dream sequence right where he's having this dream about his mother in New York, but he's also seeing images of this necklace falling, this necklace that was in Iraq. He sees the image of the clock ticking in Iraq. So it's, again, creating this idea of, like, how is this priest in Georgetown seeing things that happened in Iraq earlier? It's, I mean, yeah. Which is actually a great segue to the next topic I want to talk about, because I, which is the pacing and editing of this film, which I think is masterful. I don't know how many times I've seen this movie, at least five or six times, but rewatching it on Halloween, 4K restoration, lights out, cranked up sound. I was blown away because I think I maybe went on my phone like once or (laughs) twice and it was just to check something about the movie. Like, I was riveted, and I've seen this movie before. Like, and that doesn't... And and what I would say, too, is this is a slow movie. So the fact that it's slow, and Adam Scholes is saying it's (laughs) well-paced, is a big (laughs) deal. (laughs) No, but I think... Yes, uh, you are 100% right. I hate slow movies. I'm not a slow guy. I'm a fast guy. But it's the way in which the film juxtaposes... Yeah. It's scenes of light and dark. Yep. Freakin talks about how he really wanted to emphasize the juxtaposition of having blaringly bright sequences mm-hmm. with 
absolute dark sequences, Mm -hmm. borderline pitch black. And what he does more often and to a greater effect is having sequences that the soundtrack is absolutely unrelentingly loud and then cuts to absolute silence. And I was reading, I didn't bring this up. So part of my collection of Exorcist stuff was back when eBay was affordable in Canada, I bought, I'm just going to go get it. Um, This doesn't work in an audio medium, but I'm going to show it off anyway, because, you know, I love to show off my weird big shit that I have. (laughs) This is my Exorcist special edition box set that came out during the 25th anniversary. So it comes with this beautiful little book written by Mark Kermode with, like, facts and figures. It comes with a replica film cell of uh, one of the exorcism sequences. There you go. Some lobby cards. There you Uh go. The soundtrack which was incredibly rare, and then the DVD. So anyway, I was reading in the book that what Friedkin did with the sound team was in order to get that absolute silence, they would splice in white leader tape. So, mm-hmm. so when you use physical tape, mm-hmm. there's the standard sort of black magnetic tape, but because it has the ability to have sound attached to it, because it's magnetic... Um, there is a little bit of a noise floor, and that's what Dolby noise reduction is about. Blah, blah, blah. Mm. So by using the white leader tape, which is just basically what's at the very beginning of tapes, oh. um, it, you cannot record sound on oh. it. There, there literally can be no physical sound. Right. So therefore, it is absolute pitch it's silence. It's actually silent. It's dead air. It's actually silent. Wow. Which, again, in a, in a digital age, this is a, this is right, a, not, not a an issue. But... but Back in the analog physical sound age, this was a thing that you had to do. So there's so many wonderful sequences in this film where that's what they do. It assaults you with its sound and then it smash cuts to absolute silence. And it's just it's so effective. And I think it's the antithesis of what pretty much every horror movie today. I was just thinking that there is a. I was going to say there's no jump scares in this movie, which is not true. There is. I think there's one that comes to mind, which is when she goes into the attic and the candle sort of bursts. Yeah. Actually, no. And then there's a second one, which is less of a jump scare in the theatrical cut with the original audio mix. But in the remastered audio, restored 5-1 surround sound audio, is one of the biggest jump scares that literally makes me jolt out of my seat every time, which is when the phone rings, when Karis is listening to the tape back of Reagan. Right. And they put it in the rear speaker. And the craziest thing is that the first time I watched this movie with surround sound, I watched it again. I, my parents were gone for the weekend. I, I had rented the the restored extended director's cut. And so I, I watched it in my my family room as opposed to my basement where I didn't have surround mm-hmm. sound. So I watched it in my family room. And the speaker that that sound comes out of, that the phone ring comes out of, is was literally next to our landline <laughs> so it was like doubly scary because it was like my actual phone was ri- and it just like an eternal it, darkness I, moment i i leapt off of the couch because i was so scared wow. and watching it again this time i knew that that was a moment that scared me before and i was like oh I, yeah. i'm looking forward to and it's got me again because it was just like the speaker was like right next to my head and it went off and i just like jolted out yeah. of my seat i mean so. my recollection is that the crab walk is also a bit of a jump scare oh yeah yeah i guess that's kind yeah. of a jump scare too but essentially this is a film that is for the most part devoid of what the sort of traditional now commonplace jump scares and 
stylistic choices that a horror movie yeah, would take. I think more importantly, most of the movie is doing the opposite to your point, right? It's like in yeah. terms of the overall balance, it's mostly going from very, very loud to very, very quiet, right? And very, very extreme to very, very calm. And like that weirdly also really works, I feel like, in terms of building yeah. that sense of dread and horror and ominousness. I don't know exactly why it works, to be honest. It just kind of adds up, you know? What's so funny, too, is that when I was doing the research is that, you know, famous stories of people passing out in the movie theater watching this mm -hmm. and, and fainting. And apparently it wasn't from the scenes with the demon. It was the medical sequences. Yeah. Which I got lots I, to say about that. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to sort of talk to you about the medical because one of the reasons I bring it up is because it's a prime example of when she's going through the arteriogram and you hear the chunking of the machine yeah. and it is so loud and oppressive and then again it smash cuts to the x-ray coming up on screen at such a great moment. The sound design, and I love this movie. But it's one of those early examples of the sort of back and forth the play of loud and quiet chaos and serenity mm -hmm. but it's not a scene of demonic possession it's a medical sequence yeah a lot of i think what freakin is kind of getting at is that like the medicine on screen looks very barbaric and mm -hmm. i think that he's sort of draw trying to draw a parallel between the medicine and the exorcism or these sort of like more spiritual treatments, I guess you could say, of Reagan's ailment. Because like, again, to your point, some of the most hor like genuinely horrific stuff that happens on screen is really what is done to Reagan in those medical scenes. Right. Well, I and I wanted to ask you ab about this date because I know that you have a lifelong fear of needles which yeah. i i believe you told me you have actually worked through and is it's less of an issue now but i as i was watching this i was like how is nate gonna get through this sequence of her getting the arteriogram because it is there's a mm -hmm. big ass needle and there's a lot of blood and it is yeah it's it the needle goes right into her neck for me it's it doesn't bother me but yeah, yeah it goes yeah. right into her neck it's, and there's a spurt of blood and yeah, like Batty said, that's when people actually fainted in later interviews. Like that's when people were passing out and stuff when when that did happen. Not the later stuff. It wasn't really about the possession. It's just that, you know, as I found out, you know, through getting treatment for this, a lot of people are have a phobia of needles yeah. at varying levels. Like even yep. during COVID when when they had those mass sites for vaccination, they actually had a special area with multiple cots for people who fainted they just had a whole system because th as soon as they started doing it they realized how many people actually had this yeah. fear and probably in their day-to-day -day lives just avoid getting vaccinations but with covid totally. had to do it all that to say when i was going through exposure therapy to overcome my fear of needles basically what the the treatment was was watching videos like that on Jesus. on repeat for like an hour every day oh for a, several weeks uh, one of my favorite ones, I think it was my very first one. It was a treatment for varicose veins where they inject Ooh. salt water into people's varicose veins and the veins oh. disappear. So Gross. all that to say, I'm pretty desensitized at this point. But in the theater, in that scene, there was definitely a moment where I was like, I'm getting a little woozy. Yeah. I had to like use some of my other strategies to kind of like deal with that. But like. It's a really, really intense scene. There's a really great paper that came out, I think, just like last year or two years ago about specifically oh. the medical stuff in The Exorcist. 
And as it turns out, like he did as much research on the medicine side of it as he did on the exorcism side of it. So he, oh, interesting. He, okay, he had like a whole cadre of doctors that he was talking to from a variety of different medical institutions to try to get the science right. That scene, I think you were talking about, where they're talking about her behavior and stuff. That stuff was intentionally sort of the cutting edge of behavioral science, cognitive science at that time. You know, yeah. And the thing that struck me immediately was what they're actually describing in that scene where they're kind of going back and forth. And he's like, there's this new idea about how these things work and blah, 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 blah to Chris. Yeah. He's describing ADD. Yeah. It's just they didn't yeah, he, they didn't have a name for it. <laughs> yeah. He prescribes her Ritalin, was, which apparently right. in the 2000 re-release when they said like that was one of those scenes where the audience would laugh because prescribing children Ritalin had become so common. And by 2000 was sort of like frowned upon almost yeah, like it because was it was over prescribed. Like yeah. Yeah. So they're like, that was sort of the one scene that didn't hold up super well because just modern medicine had moved on from that. But as you say, in 1973, it was it was groundbreaking. Yeah. But I think like the interesting thing about this is that like, I think it's come full circle in some ways where this was sort of like cutting edge science of the time. And now it does definitely feel like a time capsule. But like mm -hmm. the dynamic at play is still so commonplace. It's like IBS, totally. right? Or any number of things where we're like, well, this thing keeps happening, so we're going to give it a name, but we actually have no idea what exactly causes it. It could be this one thing. Yeah. It could be this other thing. We have some strong theories, but then, you know, some new research comes along and debunks that. That whole engagement that she has with the, with the medical professionals feels so real still today. Yeah. And I'm sure there are so many parents that, like, have had this experience of just, like, going to the doctor again and again, the doctor's doing tests and has ideas and they never quite get to the bottom of what's going on. And like, that's incredibly frightening, you know? Yeah. The scene that I found really difficult to watch was not the scenes with the needles and stuff. It's the scene. I think it's in the final act or so when she's with the like board of doctors. Right. And she basically like 17 doctors and none of you can give me any answers yeah. like it's it's basically what brings her to the breaking point where she finally decides she has to find a priest because well, one of them is like um, i don't know <laughs> maybe you know have you she, maybe she yeah, have thinks you she's possessed quote unquote yeah and an exorcism might like i don't know dislodge something it's like okay guys well and that's the other crazy thing about this movie is like how You'd think it like Tom Cruise wrote it, how anti psychiatry it is. Yeah. They keep being like, well, I guess like you could maybe talk to a psychiatrist, but before you do that, like right. let's give her another spinal tap before we bother talking to one of those quacks. Right, right. Like it's just such a bizarre, as you say, like time capsule of just but, like. But like the what? interesting thing is that the doctors are very anti psychiatry. That's what, but, that's what but, I mean. But yeah. I don't think the movie is anti psychiatry. No, 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 it, no, no. It, like, and just, that's but I'm the just... interesting thing that's striking is like the doctors are kind of acting like, oh, that's, you know, quackery. It's kind of on the fringe and all that kind of stuff. But meanwhile, the things that they're doing to her are like painful, invasive and inconclusive. <laughs> yeah. Right. They, they yeah. don't actually get to the bottom of it. And so it's like I definitely think there's a, a strong thesis in there about like, I don't know, maybe just the limitations of science. But also it seems like a fair depiction in that like. The doctors aren't claiming that they're going to fix it or that they're doing anything that's going to just like solve the problem. They're genuinely trying to figure it out and they just kind of come to the end of their tools for doing that. Yeah. I mean, well, the one guy is convinced that it's just like a lesion on the brain and they just can't, can't see it. it yet. And and once they find it, it'll be fine. And it's like, 
we're just going to put her through another series of horrible, horrible tests. And again, the parent has to say, like, no, like yeah. we're not doing this again. Like, I'm not subjecting my daughter to that um, now. Turns out she's going to go through a lot worse, Chris. Yeah. But um, I mean, like one other quick fact that's kind of fun about the, the medicine side of it. So, you know, that one machine that kind of like waves around in a circle over top. Yeah, of yeah, yeah. So that yeah. apparently the process for that is called pneumoencephalography. Um, OK. Right. Or a PEG. And apparently. OK. PEG. Yeah. Apparently, like, again, freaking put so much effort into getting this right. Not only like doing all the research, but also like getting medical facilities. The stuff is being operated by trained medical professionals. So the PEG, this weird machine, basically like was phased out like soon after this mm. film. And so that oh, in wow. particular is sort of this like historical document of how this machine worked. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. So anyway, all that stuff around the medicine, I think, is fantastic because like, you know, we were talking about the sort of documentary style and everything. But I think all of that focus on the medicine does enhance the supernatural elements so much because we kind of get to the edge of reason and scientific understanding and there's no answers you know it's just yeah. such a good counterpoint to the rest of the film well there's also another sort of interesting factoid from that sequence that i wanted to bring up the person who's administrating the first sort of arteriogram on raid and he's like okay reagan i'm gonna like take your head right. and i'm gonna place it here and he's sort of talking her through everything and it was this weird thing i was like that guy can't be an actor like this mm. this feels too too natural too realistic I, I think this is when I pulled out my phone for the first time. I pulled up the IMDb trivia and was like, okay, yeah, the, all of those people in this sequence are the actual medical professionals at that hospital who perform these medical treatments on actual patients. And yep. I was like, okay, that totally tracks. And they look, they look the part. They've got that classic 1970s look. But the interesting thing here is that that guy specifically, who's talking her through the nice nurse, is a convicted murderer. Oh. And may actually be a serial killer responsible for a bout of killings of gay men in New York City that inspired William Friedkin to make the movie Cruising. Whoa, that's yeah. so crazy. Oh, my God. Yeah. Again, you're like, OK, is this just like one of those weird IMDb trivia facts? No, like if you look that gentleman's name up, I can't remember. It's Paul. I think it's Paul something. I, sh I should have written it down, but there's a whole Wikipedia article I think he murdered like a, a critic or something. And it was I think it was related to like he was in a drug stupor or whatever. Wow. And he was convicted of murder. And then when I guess when he was in prison may have confessed again, who knows if it's true or not to a number of other killings that happened in New York that were known as like these garbage bag killings of, of gay men. But yeah, just like this weird sort of like cyclical crazy thing that exists. One of the many crazy things that exists in this movie. No kidding. But again, before we move on, because the sound in this sequence is just so, so good, mm -hmm. so creepy, so powerful. I mean, the sound in this movie on the whole, I just want to talk about it because it is so effective. It, it's it's one of the few Oscars that the film wins is for its sound mixing. Right. And again, it's interesting because I rewatched the film. So the first time I watched it, I watched it with the modern sort of Dolby Atmos mix, which, again, it's making use of the surrounds and everything. But then when I rewatched it, I actually watched it with because the film was originally mixed in mono. So just like one wow. center channel. That's it. And it, it's crazy that it, it, it you know, that's what it says. It's like it's a remarkable mono mix. It wins the Academy Award despite being in mono. Right. It's a very aggressive mix. But what I ended up watching it with was a what purports to be 
the surround sound mix from the six-track stereo when the film was re-released in 70 millimeter in 1979. Oh, interesting. So it is a 1979-era surround sound mix. Uh So it was very interesting because it's very, very different from how we would mix surround stuff today. It was just sort of like an interesting counterpoint to see like how they made use of those rear speakers and where did they do sort of effects in them or where were like, for example, the phone ringing gag where, right. you know, the phone is behind Karis. So in the modern mix, the phone rings behind the audience's ear. And, and as right. I said, that caused me to jump out of my chair. Whereas in the 1979 mix, it doesn't do that. It just rings in the center huh. channel. So it's just it was a very interesting way of sort of looking at the evolution of the sound of the film, because one of the knocks against the modern mixes, like a lot of these modern mixes, they sometimes fill in the gaps with sounds that aren't necessarily period accurate. Oh, and I found a really, really interesting article. We can link it in the show notes where the the guy who does the mix, I believe his name is Steve Bodeker. He works for Skywalker Sound, and he sort of talks about going through and what the remix process was like and how he was really nervous to show Friedkin and what did Friedkin want versus what did he not want and how do we take what elements we do have from the original, you know, mono stems and what can we reuse and what do we have to go find new elements for and, you know, where do we have to fill in music that wouldn't be there or otherwise. And that's why I really want to talk about this, because the music in this movie, I think, is super interesting, oh, yeah. too, because it famously doesn't have an original score. Right. They had hired Lalo Schifrin, famed composer of the Mission Impossible theme, oh. to write a score for this. I guess he had basically composed the first piece of music and they went to the scoring session and Friedkin heard it and immediately was like, absolutely not. This is garbage. Right. And he allegedly like took the sheet music off the stand and threw it into the parking lot okay he's an absolute madman but he felt that the music was too it was too orchestral it was too bombastic it was too much like a film score and he said no the music needs to be like chills that go up the the back of your Mm. neck and so he then goes to bernard herman who famously composed the hitchcock score for psycho you know a a genius and someone who friedkin very much adored Mm -hmm. Basically, like, Herman is like, well, I can do it, but um, you're not going to be able to change anything. You may have to recut some scenes based on my score, and I'm going to get a giant church organ. And I guess, like, Freakin was like, okay, thanks, but no thanks. Like, no, 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 we're not going to do that. And so, again, he's like, how am I going to do this? And he basically decides, I'm going to just use contemporary classical music. Hmm. He ends up finding the Mike Oldfield track, Tubular Bells which was just in a stack of, like, demo records that they had at Warner Brothers. And he tried that. He said he wanted a sound that sounded like Brahms' lullaby, and he felt that that kind of had the right vibe. And as I was watching it, I was just sort of struck by how modern the score feels because it doesn't have what would have been contemporary by 1973 standards which would have been a more orchestral, Total. melodic score. It's almost just sort of like ambience and it's sort of, it rides the line between sound design and music. Right. And that's very much what modern horror movie scores are kind of like. Yeah. They're really, it's just like scraping of strings and glass and, and it's not melodies. And you think of something like Psycho, you know, the shower scene that has the classic violins, right. but it, it's still melodic. Right. Whereas this doesn't have anything like that. It's just like strings that are going. Yeah, but it's not. It's. It, I would say it's more melodic than um, 
Planet of the Apes, for example. Oh, interesting. Okay. Planet of the Apes is more abstract, I would say, and atonal. This uh, it, this has a this definitely yeah, I would has say it's more a little a- bit more of like a melody to it. Like you could hum it. Like it would be hard. Well, tubular fast, be- but you could hum it. Tubular bells specifically, yes. Yeah. But I mean the rest of the music throughout the film, sure. where it's just sort of even like that opening title sequence where it's right before Iraq, where it's just sort of like tones and then screeching, right. and then you get the call to prayer. Yeah, yeah. But it's, yeah, that that was something that I was sort of, I never really paid much attention to I mean, prior to this viewing. It's so funny because, like, as you're saying it, I'm like, I don't remember any, any music in the scenes. No, Because exactly. it is very subtle, but it just kind of builds up. Like, in some ways, it, it, it maybe it reminds me, now that you're saying, like, that scene reminds me a bit of, like, 2001 A Space Odyssey or something like that. Totally. Sort of, like, you know, especially the choral stuff in that that kind of, like, builds yeah. up underneath some of the scenes and things like that. Yeah, the music of The Exorcist is very much like the music in the final 20 minutes of 2001, right. like the, the Jupiter sequence. Right. Um, it is that sort of weird classical, like there are instruments, but it it's, doesn't sound like what we sort of think of as music. Yeah. But Yeah, totally. Yeah. So anyway, I never really paid much attention to it. And, and part of this is that I'm also editing a short film that is a horror short film, mm-hmm. and I've been pulling in temp music and... In some sequences, I actually pulled in the score from The Exorcist because it was just like it was exactly what I needed. So I'm I may be more attuned to it on this rewatch. Right. But it's interesting because we talked about this with King Kong, how King Kong has this very 1930s sounding sound base. Yeah. Like there's the lack of ambience, the lack of any sort of sound design except for what's physically happening on screen. And then again, the music is very sort of 1930s orchestra stuff. And this is sort of that polar opposite. It's an interesting juxtaposition and comparison. Yeah, although I would say that, like, now that you've told me that it was originally presented in mono, that makes sense to me when I Mm. think about the sound of this film, because the sounds are quite clean and discreet from one another. Right. It doesn't sound like something that's, like, relying on being able to differentiate sounds from different sides and things like that. Totally. The mixing seems, like, quite thoughtful about from a mono perspective like the other thing that is of course impressive about this when you remember that it's made in 1973 is the special effects and the makeup work because it's just you have to remember there's no cgi i mean yes in subsequent re-releases they digitally painted out wires and it's the reason why the spider walk sequence wasn't actually cut into the film originally was they said apparently it just like they couldn't erase the harness well enough whereas now with modern technology they could sort of integrate that sequence better um but yeah like the scenes of the furniture moving and reagan being thrashed around and levitating Mm -hmm. and and vomiting and all this like it's it's all being done for real and in that fear of god documentary that i talked about they show some the like behind the scene tests and everything and it is really impressive and i think for the most part that all that stuff holds up really really well i think the one thing that maybe hasn't aged the best is the makeup. And I think it's, again, the 4K restoration, and this is kind of consistent with what I've noticed, is that, like, these films were not designed to be seen in this fidelity. And so some of the illusion is lost because the seams are a little more obvious when you see it in this perfect, pristine 4K restored image. Mm -hmm. I think Max von Sydow's makeup looks phenomenal like he the veins on his hand is the thing that i'm just like how did they do that because it literally looks like my grandfather's hands i'm like did they just like paint 
every single like I don't know Dick Smith is the makeup artist on this. He also was the makeup artist on The Godfather. He's mm. a, he's a legend. His protege was Rick Baker, who famously went on to work with John Landis and did like American Werewolf in London, right. the Thriller video. Like he actually played King Kong in the King Kong 1970s remake. <laughs> but Rick Baker is sort of like a legend of practical makeup, but like he was taught by the original legend, which was Dick Smith who worked on this. Mm-hmm. But yeah, did you have any thoughts or feelings on the I mean, I the thought, effects and the makeup? I thought it really, for me, it really completely held up. I didn't have a problem with uh, Reagan's makeup. Again, seeing it in theaters may actually be better than mm. seeing it in 4K on a screen. Yeah, you know, that, just, that would track. Yeah, I don't feel like I really noticed it looking in, janky at all. There were other things with the 4K or, or with the re-release, well, I should say, in theaters that were kind of like questionable. But it wasn't for me. It was not the effects. I thought they all looked it's, great. It, it's it's funny because, again, having watched the the Fear of God documentary, which which um, presents the film in a sort of pre-restored version right. and before it had the new color timing and all the makeup effects look a lot more natural hmm. because because of the color grading and it's almost as if that when they went through and sort of re-timed the film and added the blue cast they also like increased the saturation and it just makes all of the wounds on reagan just look completely cartoonish almost i would agree i think that stuff is where it starts to get a little rough like you know for example the vomit right is like (laughs) bright green you know i mean it's green it's already green in the original quite green because it's like pea soup or whatever but like in the newest version, it is very green, which is like it's actually yeah, it's not doing it any favors. You know, you could have desaturated no, no. that a little bit or something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, OK, well, do you have a, a favorite scene or sequence that comes to mind when you when you think of the film? Yeah, I mean, I touched on this a little bit already, but I just think all of the B plots around, if you want to call them, that's kind of mm-hmm. a TV thing. But the B plots around the main story for me are really what makes it work. So I talked about the medical stuff. I thought that really adds a lot. Karis's mother, right. And that whole subplot is so devastating and Mm -hmm. adds so much depth and richness to his character, but at the same time has basically nothing to do with the main plot. It is a separate story. (laughs) That they weave back in, you know, because the demon knows about his mother and all that sort of stuff. But, like, it's really his own struggle that is happening. Well, it's so funny because you you tease me. But, like, again, it's the kind of thing that I would be the first to be like, I don't need this. But for whatever reason, I think it's just, like, how it's executed in this sort of very matter-of-fact, non-expository, and just short enough sort of tangents that it's like it's character building yeah but we're not dwelling on it and then we're not get, digging again i feel like the modern film would be like okay well then they're going to explain that his mother actually right. is from she visited iraq in 1922 yeah, right. where she had a run you know what i, I mean think like, that's the thing is just... that like those all of those b plots now are all about plot they're mm-hmm. about more story well we need to know the exposition about yeah. why this person totally. did this or totally. who that person is and this is not that at all. It's very much like he goes and visits his mother. Basically, nothing happens, right? You just kind of yep. get a feel for him, his mother, his mother's situation, which is difficult. You get to see some nasty-ass 1970s New York City where you're just right. like, oh, my God, this right. place is creepy. Right, right. It's kind of Rocky vibes a little bit. Um, yeah, oh, very much and, so. And then he goes and visits her when she's institutionalized, right? That's one of the scenes that I find deeply 
difficult to Absolutely. watch. Absolutely. Like, deeply troubling. Again, like, the, but that's the thing is like the horror, the hardest parts of this movie, the scary parts, the sad parts, the disturbing parts, a lot of it is around the exorcism. It's real life, right? It's the yeah. medical procedure, yeah. procedures. It's seeing your mother in this compromised position in an institution where there are other people who have their own problems and they're reaching out for you. Like all of that stuff is very, very scary. And Again, it makes the exorcism feel of a piece with the real world, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, and it's funny. I guess we never really touched on this part, but, like, I grew up in a relatively agnostic household. Mm-hmm. Like, I went to Sunday school for the first few years of my life, but it was yeah. I think it was just because it was, like, it was a community thing. Like, we weren't there for the church. We were there for yeah. the fact that, like, other family friends were going. I went to, like, Bible camp. Well, I always called it Jesus camp. <laughs> For a couple summers, because again, it was like other friends yep. of mine were also going, and it was the camp that was close to our house. And yeah, like, it was very similar for me. Yeah. Yeah. And like, we watched Veggie Tales, and I, everybody was bringing out their pocket Bibles, and I was like, huh, wait, what? Yeah. what Jesus? Yeah. Who? The guy, the guy from Easter, right? Yeah. The only difference is that I got, I did actually get confirmed, believe it or not. Oh, oh, I did not. That was know around that. the time okay. I stopped going to church. But but I did get confirmed. Fair, 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 and fair. probably the best part of getting confirmed is I watched Jesus Christ Superstar as part of that confirmation process for the first time. And I love that. Hell movie. yeah. That's a good movie. Anyway. Yeah. So again, like coming at this movie from essentially a place of non faith, yeah. it, it, it hits very differently than I, I, obviously it does for someone of a more Catholic based background. But what I always find so creepy just because I've always found them creepy is like any of the scenes in the churches, any of the scenes with religious iconography, my grandmother, when she was very, very ill was in a hospital that I believe it was St. Joseph's hospital of all things. And there were these eerie stairwells that were very poorly, creepily lit that would have like statues of, Jesus with some lambs or Jesus and some children. And they just creep me the f*** out. Mm-hmm. There's this like eeriness to the imagery just inherent to it. And so the scenes at Georgetown or the scenes where Father Karras is back at the barracks and with his his friends and just like the dark hallway is like all of that stuff. Just I don't know. That's the stuff that creeps me out the most. That's what's so interesting about this movie is that, like you say, it's not the scenes with the demon, you know, I don't really find that stuff that deeply troubling. I mean, yeah. masturbating with a crucifix, I don't love that sequence, but... But a lot of it is gross. It's more disgusting and repulsive than it is scary to me, I guess. You yeah, know? the violence and the gore is not the thing that I find disturbing in this movie. Right. As you say, it's everything else around it is weirdly more troubling. Yeah. What about you? I mean, do, do you have a favorite uh, scene in the movie or favorite sequence? Yeah, so it's funny. I never remembered this scene prior to my rewatch, mm. but it's the scene where Kinderman shows up and he sort of comes to interrogate, essentially, Chris about... He's essentially planting the seed of, like, I think your daughter murdered Burke, right, the, right. the director of the film. But he's never going to come right out and say it because he understands that this woman is going through absolute hell. Right. So it's sort of this, like, subtle dance of, like, he's insinuating this and insinuating that, all while, like, drinking his coffee. And there's and then there's that great scene where she's like, would you like another cup of coffee, which you know is just her being like, oh, please say no, please get the <laughs> out of my house. And he's like, sure. And, and she has this, like, look on her face of, like, damn it. 
And and there's a great line reading of of he goes, you know, but when you when she does wake up, you'll 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 ask her about about Mr. Dennings and if he came into her room. And she goes, I just I don't think there would be any reason. And he goes, oh, I know. I realize. But and it's just like it's this sort of like jovial, warm. It's a lovely little moment. Again, it's a respite in the film where everything sort of that we've been experiencing goes away. And for a little moment, we're going to have like a little police procedural moment. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, after that sequence, you get the masturbating with the crucifix sequence, which is one of the most horrifying images in the film. Yes. So it's this wonderful sort of interplay of like the audience is sort of sitting down and going, okay, I'm get, taking a breath and like, oh, maybe this film is going to go in a different direction. Maybe right. it's going to be saves the pers- day. Yeah. Like, and then no, 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 no we're just getting started yeah. folks. Yeah, like for sure. But again, I hadn't really remembered that sequence at all from my previous watch throughs, but for whatever reason, watching it this time, I was like, this is such a great scene. The acting, like mm-hmm. the performances that both Lee J Cobb and, Ellen Burstyn are giving is just phenomenal. There's you can get so much just from their facial expressions and the little subtleties of like what they're saying and what they're not saying. Yeah, I just think it's such a brilliant scene that kind of sticks out because it's so unlike the rest of the movie. Well, like Kinderman's but... kind of this interesting character that comes and goes. He's the only source of kind of like warmth and humor in the movie. Because all of the yes. other characters are going through terrible shit and <laughs> and like are pretty mirthless <laughs> throughout all of it. He's funny and light, but at the same time, there's always this thing below the surface of he knows, though. You know he's smart yeah. and he's always kind of just like uh, moving the conversation along strategically. In yes. the scene with Chris, the scene with Karis, all of that, he's always kind of like pushing in certain directions, but always with this gentle, jovial sort of attitude. Great character, great performance. You know, we've been talking for almost two hours. I want to talk a little bit now about the ending of the film, because this is something that I never really thought much about until in preparation for this. I watched another documentary, Mm -hmm. a documentary called Leap of Faith, and it's uh, a conversation with William Friedkin where he just basically ruminates on the film and sort of talks through beat by beat and gives behind the scenes stories and all this stuff, but also sort of talks about his influences and the images that inspired Mm -hmm. the film. And this was made a couple years ago. So shortly prior to his death, because he passed away this past year. And it's interesting because again, like his opinions or his stories or little things have changed over the years. And this is again, doing more research. Apparently this is not uncommon for Billy Friedkin. Like he was a man who loved to, to, to weave a good yarn and if he could change the story to make it better he would so it's tough to know where the truth begins and ends here but in this film he starts discussing the ending of the film and he frames it in a way that i had never thought about it so i'm going to play a clip it's a little on the long side but i i want to get your take on it afterwards Mm -hmm. nate so let's just take a listen to billy freakin talking about the ending of the exorcist The idea of demonic possession and exorcism is the idea that the priest calls upon Jesus Christ through this ritual to exorcise the demon. And the ending of the exorcist contradicts what I've just told you. During the exorcism, there could be no cutaways. And I said, Bill, what happened there? Did he, he went out the window, obviously. How? Was he possessed? No, Bill said. He wasn't possessed. 
No, he made the conscious decision to take himself out the window and killing himself with a demon inside him. I said, but Bill, that's suicide. It's a sin in the Catholic Church. Suicide is a sin. It was confusing then. It's confusing now. (laughs) Karis looks out the windows, which are open, and the curtains are blowing. He sees the face of his mother. It's a two- or three-frame cut, which is not in the book, which Blatty questioned but ultimately went along with, with the idea that perhaps he thinks he's going to join his mother in the afterlife. And at that moment, you see for a split second, his features change and become demonic and seize his hands about to go around the little girl's neck to strangle her to death, which is probably the demonic impulse. And then they unchange. The demon is not in him and specifically at Blatty's request. And most people don't see or even get that we go back to Karis as Karis. I would have kept the demon features on Karis throughout. And Bill said, no, you have to go back to Karis's own features in the act of yelling no, so that he makes the conscious decision to do it. Otherwise, it's the demon that has triumphed. But it isn't even clear to me as I sit here (laughs) why in the hell that happens. I, I defy anybody watching this to tell me what they make of that scene if they really look at it and study it. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So I know that was a little on the long side, but I think it's a really, really interesting framing for this ending because I never I never would have questioned it prior to this. And now I can't stop thinking about it because I'm like, yeah, he's right. This doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Right. Right. Because essentially, yeah, like why would Karis kill himself if the demon's not in him any longer? And then where does the demon go? Or the demon because is realistic- in him, but he regains control, but it's unclear why he regains control. Because like, yeah. you know, the whole point of the rite of exorcism is that it is this expression of absolute faith. And you are yes. asking Jesus Christ to come and expel the demon from the person's body. But what yep. he just did is sort of like give up on the right and ask the demon to enter him. He gets his necklace torn off, right? Which is his protective metal, which is yeah. protective, but also symbolic, right? Of like his yeah. faith, right? And so like all this stuff is telling us he's actually betraying at least like the church, I would say. Maybe not his faith, yeah. but the church, yeah. right? Like the, the way yeah. that things are done within the Jesuit Catholic tradition. So why does it work? <laughs> it's a good point. Yeah. I'd never thought of that before. I'd never thought of that before. And I agree with Freakin that it would make sense that the demonic makeup should have stayed on him as he leaps out because he's killing himself to kill himself and the demon right. with it. Right. But by making him go back to non-demonic form... And then kill himself. It sort of muddles. Logically, that doesn't really make any sense. So the reason I bring all of this up, of course, is that this is actually leads me into this idea of the alternate extended version you've never seen before cut. So 
why does this thing exist? Because basically what happens is in, uh, for the 25th anniversary, Warner Brothers re-releases the film. They go back and they do a little bit of restoration work. They do a new sound mix. They add a digital morph at that sequence because originally in the film, there's just a hard cut between him in makeup and not in makeup. Sure. So they add like a little subtle morph, uh, a couple other things like that, the painting out of the wires, all this stuff. So that happens for the 25th anniversary, which would have been, um, my math is not very good, 1973 plus 25. 1998. What would that be? Yeah, so like 98. Two years later, the version you've never seen is re-released in theaters. <laughs> an extended cut. Yeah. The trailers are like with extended with new footage, new scenes, digitally restored right. soundtrack. But it was never referred to as a director's cut. Oh, interesting. Then it started to be referred to as an extended cut. And now, in all formats, if you go on iTunes, if you buy the 4K Blu-ray and everything, it is referred to as the director's cut. Right. Which I take issue with, and this is just a, my bugaboo, but to me, a director's cut should imply, not that, and I know that the marketing material is like, it's now just become a marketing term, yeah. but to me, traditionally, what a director's cut meant was the studio meddled with it. Right. And released a version that the director was did not approve. The director's cut is the version that they would have released if they were allowed right, to. It's the classic Blade Runner situation. Exactly. That is what comes to mind to me when they think of a classic director's cut situation. Yeah. Studio intervened. They they mangled the theatrical cut. Now the director gets to go back and restore it to his original vision. Right. And then, of course, you've got the Alien movies. There's what's referred to as the director's cut, but Ridley Scott says, no, like, the theatrical cut is the director's cut. This is just a fun alternate version that I made. Right. Right? So, <laughs> but when Friedkin was talking about why he made these changes for the extended cut, because one of the things that apparently he and William Peter Blatty got in a big fight over was the ending of the film. Right. Blatty felt that the ending of the film was far too much of a downer and that... Basically, he felt that audiences could walk away thinking that the devil won, mm. which I do not understand how anyone could watch this movie and walk away thinking that. Like, I think that very clearly good triumphs over evil, even in its original form. Yeah. But and I again, I don't know how true this is, but the work print version of the film was closer to the version you've never seen. It didn't contain the spider walk, but it did. The The scene in question that Blatty really objected to Friedkin cutting was the scene near the end of the film when there's a pause in the exorcism where Karis asks Marin, like, why this girl? Why this girl? It makes no sense. I think the point is to make us despair. And sort of, like, offers up on a silver platter the entire thesis of the film. Yeah. So... That was in the original cut, and I guess some studio executive said, you know, Billy, I don't think you need this. I don't think you need that scene early on where she goes and gets diagnosed. And so they they trimmed a few things, and then that was the version that was put out. So then 25th anniversary happens. I guess Billy and William start talking, because apparently they, like, Blatty was so upset with how the film ended up turning out. Like, he and Freakin didn't talk for many years. Mm. They rekindle their friendship. They are talking more and more about the film and i very much get the impression that the extended director's cut quote unquote exists because he wanted to do a favor to his friend the writer and restore it to the writer's vision mm. and it should more aptly sort of be called the, the writer slash producer's cut right because the scenes that are essentially being added back in are more or less sort of these sequences that 
they don't really detract from the film, but I don't think they necessarily add anything to the film. Right. And then freaking adds a bunch of extra like CGI subliminal images, which I think really don't work. Yeah. Uh, It's super funny because in the commentary for the theatrical cut, there's a sequence where Regan's sleeping. Chris comes into the room. She like closes the window and and in the commentary, Freakin's like, this area here, of course, has no, no subliminal imagery. You could have. I mean, the temptation here is to hide little demons in the darkness here. And probably if they were making the film today, that's what they would do is to pump it up. And then literally two years later, he does the exact thing that he's saying, like, <laughs> I would never do, which I just think is really funny. And like, OK, like, what are you on, buddy? But all that's to say, I think both cuts of the film work. They yeah. work really well. I think I probably prefer like a, a mixture of the two. Yeah, like, same here, I think. Add all the extended stuff back in, but take out all of the cheesy CGI yeah, yeah. bullshit. That crap. I mean, obviously, it's the 50th anniversary of the original cut, but it's yeah. interesting that you ended up seeing the quote unquote director's cut right. as Which I, what, the 50th anniversary. Yeah. I think what I would say is I prefer the longer scenes throughout the movie mm. a lot. I think they're better. I think that the medical scene, at least in the th- when you're seeing in theaters, you know, pacing maybe gets screwed up if you're at home and that kind of stuff. But in theaters, I was so locked in and I, I loved the extra sort of uh, medical context, you know, and like that whole back yeah. and forth just added to all the things I already liked about that sequence. And the scene on the stairs right near the end where, you know, basically, yeah, the thesis of the, of the story is sort of delivered to you doesn't feel heavy handed to me in the context of the film. It's a pretty small moment and it's still a little bit cryptic. It's not like, you know, and that's why you always leave a note. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. You know, it's much more, it makes you think, I guess. And then it's also like in the middle of this exorcism, you know, and then they're right back into it. Yeah. It's fascinating because again, as an editor, I'm just sort of predisposed to find this shit fascinating, but I don't think that the extended sequences mess with the pacing. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that is that Friedkin very wisely did go back and he made some other adjustments. For example, there's a scene in the theatrical cut at the dinner party that Chris throws where Reagan is like running around and having fun with the guests. And then later she comes down the stairs and you're going to die up there. She pees on the carpet. He cut the sequence of her running around having fun because he had put that sequence with the doctor saying that she's been acting weird. Mm. And so he felt that by saying she's been acting strangely and then showing her being happy-go-lucky a scene or two later, it didn't. So he's right. he's understanding that, like, by adding this, I have to take this out. And that's what I think helps make this work, because it's not just an additive process. Yeah. It is a restructuring totally. process. And it's coming back and thinking about it for, sort of with fresh yeah. eyes. So, Well, what about the very end? Because that's the other thing that is changed and added right yeah it's, it's, it's like it, a very different take on the ending right so i feel like we need to kind of lay it out a little so the yeah. original cut as my my recollection is Harris dies in both versions like same yep. same death down the stairs he gets his last rites from the priest but what's changed is sort of what happens after that right Correct. so in both cases the family is leaving right chris and reagan are leaving in the car and the other priest what's his name uh, Father Dyer. The Father Dyer, it, you know, comes to sort of say goodbye, right? And in the original cut, they're driving away and then they kind of... Um, the car stops and she sort of flags him over. Right. Because she wants to return 
the St. Joseph's medal right. that was found in Reagan's bedroom. Right. And so, you know, the father takes it and then they drive off and then he kind of just wanders over to the stairs and looks down and the and the tubular bells come back, you know, as he's looking down. And I've, I, I kind of get where Blatty's coming from. And it maybe it becomes clearer when we talk about the alternate version. It's not just that it's a downer ending. It's that, like, what is the father thinking in that moment when he's looking down okay. the stairs? And what does it mean that he's thinking that? Because, like, so much of the movie is about Karis's doubt, right? Right. And so, like, is the despair and the doubt seeping into him as he looks down the stairs? Like, I think that's one reading that you could sort of take from that ending and be like, right. you know, it's like the ending of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, right? Where you're kind of <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. ah, surprise, I'm still here. Like, there's a bit of that vibe to it, especially with the music <laughs> coming back in, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, and then you have the alternate take, right? All the same stuff happens up to the car. And then she tries to give the necklace back and he gives it back to her and says something like, why don't you keep it? And she yep. does. And then Kinderman shows up basically after they drive off. Is he? And uh, the priest and Kinderman have a conversation about movies, kind of recalling the previous conversation with Karis. Yep. And then they actually walk off together, presumably to go see a movie or I don't know have a beautiful relationship to, to start their friendship that will become very key plot element in exorcist three Legion. right um <laughs> now so here are two things that i'm gonna add to this yeah. um originally that scene ended with him quoting casablanca and saying oh. i think this is the start of a beautiful friendship <laughs> but the audio yeah thankfully the audio was no good oh, and they God. couldn't find like a, a a take where the audio was usable good. So it cuts out before that. Yeah, I know. Thank God. That would have been a step too far. Uh, Yeah. So in the commentary track, one of the things he talks about, though, is that he wanted to always show Karis rising. So one of the early scenes, you see him coming up out of the subway. So he's walking up the steps. And then, as I mentioned earlier, after Chris says, is she going to die? He turns to her and he says, no. And then there's a, a wide shot and you see him walking up the stairs, essentially going to his death. Right. So there's this sort of motif of like Karis rising. And so apparently after he had locked the film, he felt that he wanted to add a button to the ending. Hmm. And so he wanted to add a shot of Karis walking up the steps after. So you would have the shot of Father Dyer looking down the steps and then it would cut to a shot of Karis walking up the steps. Weird. It's unclear if the idea would be like it's a ghost or it's like a flashback or like what that would be. Right. But I guess the studio was like, no, we're not giving you money to do this. Like, you've, you've, had, you've gotten away with way too much here. You're not going back. The film was already in theaters at this point. Wow. And so they were just like, it ain't broke, don't fix yeah. it. And so he never got around to shooting the scene. So it's this interesting thing of, like, he clearly wasn't really happy with the ending ending of the film. Yep. So when they go back and do the extended cut, they add in the sort of button of the cyclical, like, the friendship goes on. You know, the idea... Well, but the friendship... The thing is that Kara said no to the movies, right? He declined Kinderman's well, offer. Well, Dyer d- technically does, too, because if you recall, the line is that Kara says, I've seen it. Right. And Dyer says, I've seen it, and he goes, another one. Right, right. And But then the sort of friendship is, like, because they walk off together. Sure. So the implication is that, like, well, at least they're continuing but, but to But you talk, could almost so. read it as, rather than the cycle continues, the cycle is broken, Right. 
True, and, true. And, yeah, and that's I mean, sort of the thing is it's like we've come back full circle, but then we're going to keep going in a different direction yeah. from there. Yeah. And like, whereas I think the thing is about, you know, particularly around the necklace, I think that's kind of the crucial thing, right? Yeah. One way to read it is that she's like, why is she giving him the necklace? Because, yeah, you could be like, well, you know, he's his friend. She's giving him the necklace because, you know, he knew Karis better or whatever. But on the other right. hand, you could say, okay, she's trying to forget what happened. She doesn't want a reminder of what happened, right? There's also the religious side of it, of like, she went down this road of exorcism and demons and God and Christ and all this stuff. And she's basically being like, I don't want to live in that world anymore where that's real. And and so yeah, but, you know, takes see, this back and he takes it back and she leaves. Whereas in the alternate version, he gives it back to her and she accepts it. And as which could be sort of a sign of faith, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But see, this is what's interesting, because the St. Joseph's Medal is meant as a protective talisman. This sure. is my understanding. And it's funny in the Fear of God documentary. Jason Miller tells this story. I'm, maybe I'm conflating two things, but I'm pretty sure this is what happened. He actually received that St. Joseph's Medal or a St. Joseph's Medal from an old priest oh. who, because he was doing research about like being a priest and he, he wanted what a priest would wear. So he went to Georgetown and said, do you guys keep the clothes of priests who have passed on? Wow. And they said, uh, actually, yeah, like we have, because it's a, it's a brotherhood and all this stuff. So they, they took Jason Miller downstairs into this like room where they just had the clothes of all these former priests. Wow. And so he basically picked all of his wardrobe from there. So anyway, he tells this story of he met an old Jesuit, Jesuit priest who says, like, I'm going to give you this medal. It's you're going to hold on to it. It's going to protect you because I think you're clearly dealing with devilish things. And the devil, he's a trickster and he he doesn't like anybody to expose him for the trickster that he mm. is. So I'm going to give you this medal because it's going to protect you. And he said uh, he was then back in Georgetown a couple of days later and he's walking through the halls and he catches a glimpse out of the corner of his eye and he sees a casket. And he walks over and he looks in the casket and it's the priest that had given him the medal. Jeez. The implication being like he gives him his protective talisman and then he dies shortly thereafter. So with that context, the reading of her giving up the medal is also this idea of like, I no longer need this protection, but you might. Right, and then he goes and looks Versus, down the stairs and the music starts yeah, up. Which, so which, all I'm saying granted, is, Blatty okay. had a point. <laughs> okay, I can, granted, I will grant you. But the idea, I don't buy that she should keep it because she doesn't need it any longer. And that's right. that, to me, is the whole idea is, like, the evil has been expelled. She very clearly says, Reagan doesn't remember anything. There's that beautiful moment where she sort of says, hi, father. She looks at his collar and kisses him on the on the cheek and, and freaking talks about it in the, or in the commentary of, like, it's this idea of she doesn't know why she does it. It's it's, but she feels this in, innate sense of gratitude to this figure. Yeah, and so she has to express her thanks. Comes through one hundred percent in the acting, also. Again, because Linda Blair is apparently the greatest child actor of all time. <laughs> uh, sorry, Tatum O'Neill. So to me, I don't dislike any of the yeah. added stuff, but I don't necessarily feel I eat any of the added stuff. I don't dislike the theatrical ending, but I don't dislike the. Extended cuts ending. Yeah. I do think that the extended cut does have a much clearer, unambiguous end ending. Yeah. But I think I kind of like, again, I don't think that you could read the ending of the original as 
good doesn't triumph over evil. But I think there's maybe an argument to be made that good has triumphed over evil, but evil will return. Yes, exactly. For now. Whereas I think that the... Yeah, question. Exorcist 3? But I think the extended ending is maybe a bit more like, good has triumphed over evil, hooray, Catholicism. Yeah. Like... And maybe that's why I'm a little less sold. Yeah, yeah, no, that's totally fair. I largely agree that, like, I think both endings work. It's just a matter of which flavor you prefer. (laughs) Totally. Nice to have Kinderman back, but I like the ominous tone of the original as well. So that brings us to the section we like to call the parts that seem like Simpson jokes but aren't. Um... Not gonna lie, I mean, <laughs> the movie's funnier than one would expect for a movie about a little girl possessed by a demon, but it's not a laugh-a-minute, you know, uproarious laugh-riot. Yeah. Was there anything that comes to mind for you, Nate? I mean, so this is a joke that is in The Simpsons, but we haven't talked about it yet, so I'll throw it out there. Uh, <laughs> okay, perfect. There I mean, I the scene, of course, the, the famous scene where her head does a full 180 is parodied right. in The Simpsons multiple times. It's uh, parodied in lots of things, yeah. yeah. Both times on The Simpsons, it is Maggie that does it, which is kind of funny. Yes. It's a runner, surprisingly, in The Simpsons. I could only find it twice, but I seem to remember it more than twice. Once is in a treehouse of horror, and once is in a canonical instance, which... Yes, it happens in a canonical instance in, uh, okay, I'm gonna, now I'm going to try to say the title, Home Sweet, <laughs> Home Diddly Dum Doodly. Um, which it. is the one where basically like, God, Bart and Lisa and, and Maggie get taken away by child protective services and given to the mm-hmm. Flanders. They've become Flanders. Yeah. The whole, the whole sort of, you know, uh, gag of that episode is that Bart and Lisa hate it and are kind of freaked out, but Maggie's kind of getting into it. And the question is, will yeah. she come back to the Simpsons or not? And of course they express that by her doing a full 180. uh, with her neck in the car. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that's, the, I, you know, of course, when I saw that scene, I immediately thought of those of those parodies. But how about you? Was there anything that wasn't parodied on The Simpsons that jumped out at you? So the only thing I could think of, and we sort of touched on it, Kinderman has this thing where he asks, he talks to Karis and he says, you know, do you like movies, father? I get passes. And Karis says, well, what's playing? And I don't remember what he specifically says, but he, he, I, I, he I know, references. I remember one. I'm It's, he says that Othello is playing, and I believe he says Othello is being played by one of the Marx brothers. Who's in it? Who's in it? Debbie Reynolds does Demona and Othello Groucho Marx. You happy? I've seen it. Uh, as a child and even as a grown-ish adult, I didn't realize that this was a joke. The right. joke being that Groucho Marx would not be in a production of Othello. And, be, and then the joke being that Karis goes, I've seen it. Right. So he's, you know, Kinderman has made up this movie that doesn't exist. And Kara says, I've seen it. And then in the extended cut, you have the moment where it happens again. Right. It's not very Simpson-y, but I guess it's supposed to be a joke. And to an audience of the era, it would be really funny. Oh, like Groucho Marx in in Othello? Like, you're kidding me. But (laughs) to a modern audience, it's maybe lost on them because it's like, well, yeah, there's been a lot of adaptations of Othello. Like, maybe there was one with Groucho Marx. I don't know. Right. So anyway, that is the closest thing I could think of. There are moments that make me laugh in the movie and and chuckle, but they're not they're not jokey jokes and they're definitely not Simpsons-y joke. But Kinderman is the most sort of like punchline-y character. And again, this is a guy who wrote 
A Shot in the Dark, one of, the, <laughs> I think, the funniest movies ever made. Like, that is a movie that had me crying. I was laughing so hard. So I guess I just have a spot for Peter Sellers as Inspector Clouseau. I don't know. <laughs> so the, the guy knows how to write comedy. I'm not saying he's not comedic, but that is not what he was trying to do. Here, right. So <laughs> makes sense. So, Nate, can you talk me through the performance of the film? Because obviously it's 50 years later. It's now considered to be one of the greatest horror movies, if not the greatest horror movie of all time. But how did it do at the time? Was it successful? Yeah. So this movie had a budget of about $11 million at the time. Which is decent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not not teeny tiny, but also not, you know, enormous either. Um, but the original release made $193 million. Oh my so goodness. It's a big boy. And the re-releases, of course, which we've talked a lot about, have also made a fair amount of money over the years. So the domestic re-releases made an additional $40 million. Holy shit. And the international re-releases made $137 million. Wow. So more than doubled, you know, the, the by a significant amount, the amount that they were making. So when I went and saw it, it had one of those introductions by, like, someone from uh, Warner Brothers, I guess. <laughs> like, okay. Like an executive sure. being like, this is a great movie. Uh, but one of the things that he, <laughs> one of the sort of factoids he pulled out was that this was the biggest hit for Warner Brothers since My Fair Lady, which, of course, we've also yeah, covered on the podcast. Of course. And was also a big honking hit. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Well, and then, of course, during the Barbie discourse this summer, that movie made an astronomical amount of money. And I remember people were saying, you know, this is the biggest hit for Warner Brothers since The Exorcist. Oh. And I was like, the, wait, what? Like, Warner Brothers has not had a sizable hit since The Exorcist in 1973. Yeah. But, yeah, apparently, if you adjust for inflation, The Exorcist made the equivalent of $1.3 billion, <sighs> which is just shy of Barbie's box office which i believe was 1.4 billion dollars wow. wow 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 so i yeah, i would have thought it was like the dark knight was like the biggest warner brothers hit or yeah. like even like lord of the rings or something but no like if you adjust for inflation they all pale in comparison to the exorcist wow. which is just astonishing yeah, hard to, to hard to wrap your your mind around truly that like the dark knight was not as big a hit as that as the exorcist as an R-rated movie about a little girl possessed by a demon. Right, that, like, famously yeah. was controversial, made people faint. Like, it's not just a horror movie. It's, like, by all accounts, it's it, a lot of people will say it's the scariest movie of all time. But it's also an R-rated movie. Yeah, like, true. You, Limited audience. Like, Bat Batman could be seen by everyone. Yeah. Like, this could only be seen by 17 and up in the United States. Crazy. Um, yeah, like, crazy. Crazy, crazy, crazy successful. Yeah. And then, you know, and on the awards front, right, I mean, as you mentioned, it did win Best Sound. It also did win Best Adapted Screenplay as well, hmm. which, you know, given everything you've said, that makes sense. Like, it was, it's a really thoughtfully totally. adapted screenplay. And obviously, you know, it, it probably didn't hurt that it is this bestseller book. So people know the original, right? Also nominated, though, for Best Picture, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress, Best Supporting Actor, Best Director, Best Cinematography, Best Art Direction, and Best Film Editing not too shabby <laughs> yeah but it didn't win any of those and i'm just no. pulling up what did win mm -hmm. uh because you know i'm always like when it's a movie that i love and i'm like well what the hell what could possibly be better than this uh best director went to george roy hill for a little movie called the sting mm. which also took in best picture and i got i mean okay fair enough 
Best Supporting Actress, I think this is fascinating. This is the year that it went to Tatum O'Neill for Paper Moon, making her the youngest actor to win the Oscar. Oh, that was a year of, like, con movies. A year of con movies, but also a year where two children were nominated for Best Supporting Actor, which is wild. Yeah. And I'm just looking at, and now I'm just looking up to see what won Best Editing that year, because, I again, I think this movie is incredibly well yeah, edited. Yeah, that's kind of shocking. Um, oh, it was also The Sting. Okay, fair enough. So The yeah. Sting, I The don't Sting know. was I the one I think this to... is better. I like The Sting. It's a good movie. I think this is better edited than The Sting. I agree. I, I mean, I haven't seen The Sting in probably 10 years, but I yeah. can't imagine it being better edited than This movie than goes this, out so. on a limb more in terms of the yeah. editing and successfully, you know, figures out how to and, stay on and i will road. say this i love the sting but i remember the last time i watched it being like this movie's long <laughs> whereas i did not feel that about yeah. the exorcist so like to, as much as this movie does have moments that are very dated and does feel dated in many respects i think again from a sound and editing perspective this movie is not dated at all yeah. and feels very very modern totally Yeah, so I thought for the critical reception, it might be interesting to take a look at one review that's positive and one review that's negative. Because there were people who did not like this movie. It was divisive in some ways, even though it was also very popular. So our first one is from, of course, Roger Ebert. Ah, yeah, that's our boy. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So he says, The freaking film is an exploitation of the most fearsome resources of the cinema. That does not make it evil, but it does not make it noble either. If movies are, among other things, opportunities for escapism, then The Exorcist is one of the most powerful ever made. Our objections, our questions, occur in an intellectual context after the movie has ended. During the movie, there are no reservations, but only experiences. We feel shock, horror, nausea, fear, and some small measure of dogged hope. I mean, great writing. (laughs) It's a great, I love that passage. Yeah, he's the best. But it, but it is, like, exactly on point. It's exactly what we were talking about yeah. with Billy Friedkin's concerns about the ending. It's like, in the moment, you're not thinking about that. You don't even... No, not at all. You don't even notice, because it's just all happening. Not only is it happening quickly, but it's all so visceral that you're just there in the I, moment. I was just going to say, it's such a visceral film. Yeah, yeah, 100%. It's all about the things our bodies do and when they go wrong and all that sort of stuff that's just primal, you know? Okay, but so here's a counterpoint. And the interesting thing about this is that it's relatively recent. Um, So this is from Josh Larson, who is one of the co-hosts of the Film Spotting podcast. He also wrote a book called Fear Not, A Christian Appreciation of Horror Movies. Oh, interesting. So this is a guy who, like, likes horror movies and also is coming at it from a Christian perspective. Interesting, yeah. So he says... This landmark horror picture from director William Friedkin may be more serious-minded than most of the devil flicks that followed, but it is still essentially a religious exploitation piece. There is an Mm. underlying theme in which a psychiatrist priest struggles with his allegiances to both science and faith, but that is really just window dressing for the cheap shock tactics. The Exorcist is provocation at its ugliest. Interesting. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Which, but see, the interesting thing to me is that they're both essentially saying the same thing. Yeah. It's just that one it's is just... like, that's impressive. And the other one is like, that's bullshit. Like, you know, yeah. because it doesn't, in many ways, it doesn't really grapple with Christianity that much, you know, for a movie about like a priest <laughs> who is, who is grappling with his faith. 
I don't think it has a lot to say about Christianity or about the nature of faith or the nature of God or those hmm, kinds of things. And especially with the ending, you know, to Billy Friedkin's point, it's like the ending actually is very muddled on what the hell it all means in terms of, you know, what really did in the demon in the end. Is it faith? Is it something else? Like what happened? It's kind of hard to figure it out. So if you're someone who knows a hell of a lot about horror movies and is coming at it from a Christian perspective, I could see how you might be like, what's really under the hood, you know? Right. Even though it's very visceral, like, what is it trying to say? Yeah, and I mean, this is something that we we never actually touched on this when we were talking about it, but <clears throat> Billy Friedkin famously, and this is part of why I think a lot of people sort of celebrated him as a, as a choice as a director, is that he considered himself at the time agnostic. Huh. He was raised Jewish, then became, like many people sure. sort of just stepped away from religion and became a religious and then agnostic. And then he, uh, I, I guess in his later years, probably as a result of his friendship with, you know, all of these Catholic priests said that he started to um, take more stock in the followings and the teachings of Jesus huh. Christ, which I think is kind of fascinating that, yeah. you know, so many people sort of said the part of the success of the film is that it's made by an agnostic, it's made by somebody who is sort of separated from the material. Sure. And then he sort of eventually finds his way back into that <laughs> world in his, in later in life. But those are two fascinating takes on what I think is a, a fascinating film. So I guess that brings me to our verdicts. Mm. Nate, do the strengths outweigh the weaknesses? Did you did you enjoy your rewatch? Yeah, I mean... Absolutely. And I was really grateful to be able to see it in theaters. Once again, you're, you're locked in front to back mm. in the really intense, crazy scenes, but also in all of those quiet moments because the acting is great. You know, the pacing to your earlier point is perfect. Like it never leaves you too long in any of those scenes. There's always that underlying dread. Yeah, yeah. I think it's an incredible movie. It does a lot of things very, very well. I don't know if I love it as much as you do, but that would be a very high bar. So on that note, what about you? What's your verdict? Would you recommend this? Well, I don't love it as much as Mark Kermo. No, um, it's funny. Growing up, there were a handful of films that I was just absolutely fascinated mm. by and absorbed all the material I could. And I think part of it was because I couldn't see the movies. Apocalypse Now comes to mind right. as one of these movies where I was just like fascinated by it because I heard so much about it and I was fascinated by the making of it and like what it means and the disaster behind it and all this stuff. And this was one of those ones, like I said, you know, my babysitter called it the scariest movie she had ever seen. She could never finish watching it. Yeah. A grown adult could not finish watching this movie. And I remember my dad, like he played tubular bells for me one time and was like describing the movie. And he's like, oh, yeah, it's this movie about a girl possessed by the devil. And I was just like, what? <laughs> So this was just a movie that I was fascinated by. But a lot of those movies, the funny thing is that when I finally saw the movie, they kind of did nothing for me. Mm. Again, Apocalypse Now is the perfect example. Like, yeah. I find the making of Apocalypse Now way more interesting than the movie sure. itself. I think the movie itself is kind of boring and it doesn't do anything for me. But this is not the case here. <laughs> I think this movie is a masterpiece. I genuinely don't think I realized how much I liked it until I rewatched it this time. Like, I always was like, oh, yeah, it's a great movie. Yeah. But upon watching it this Halloween, I was really struck. And maybe it's just because, like, everything else I've watched this year has been kind of, like, mediocre. And they just, this is a classic case of, like, they don't make it like they used to. Mm. And part of it, too, might have to do with the fact that I had seen 
the new Exorcist Believer movie a couple weeks prior, uh-huh. and it was such dog shit that I was just like going back to seeing this. I was like, oh my God, this is how you do it. But no, I do think this is a masterpiece. I recognize that it is dated and it's not without its flaws, but I am struck by how well they achieve what they set out to do and how effective and affecting it is even upon rewatch 50 years later. Yeah. And I cannot say that is always the case for some of the films that we've been watching that I had never seen before, let alone a film that I've seen multiple times before. To find this affecting is remarkable, and I have to give it credit for that. So, uh, yeah, absolutely strengths outweigh the weaknesses for me. Totally. And so what about extra credit here? I mean, I, I'm going to start because I, I think... Yeah, I was going to say, I'm going to let you go first. I, I had, you know, I had a harder time kind of, like, thinking about, like, what would I recommend? Because as we've talked about before, I'm not as much of, like, a horror person. I'm also not Let's as see. versed in Friedkin. And so right. I had, like, two in mind immediately that I wanted to kind of, like, you know, get dibs on. So <laughs> the first one we've already talked about, Exorcist 3. You know, we've recommended it yeah. in other episodes that have nothing to do with The Exorcist. And yeah, man. It's a hell of a movie, so I would check it it's out. It's a hell of a movie. But I would, with the caveat of, it is nothing like this movie. No, completely different like, do not, vibe. So it's written and directed by William Peter Blatty, the author of The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. But he wanted to call it Legion, which was the title of the book. Right. And it is, I've always struggled to come with like a comparison to it well, because so it's not. It's like, it's in the same universe. And it has yeah. a couple crossover characters, you know? Yeah. So like. That's I think that's kind of the best way to draw the connection, you know. The film itself is more like a police procedural with horror elements. Yeah, supernatural than it element. is. Yeah. 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 But it's good. <laughs> it actually works. But it's very good. It's very like I again, I I think that movie rules. It's it's very different in tone, but it's it's awesome. Yeah, I creepy I as hell. Love that movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's got one of the best scares of any movie I've ever seen. Yeah. Better than anything in The Exorcist. Yeah. One. Like, it's that good. Agreed. It's so good. Yeah, check it out. The other, you know, freaking movie that I have seen and love is Cruising. By way of comparison, again, it's another sort of police movie. It's about this guy who goes undercover to catch a serial killer who's killing gay men in New York, I believe. And the interesting thing there is that I think that the protagonist in that movie and the protagonist, well, Karis in this movie, have a lot in common in terms of sort of what they're struggling with and the way they're portrayed and everything, the sort of crisis of faith in both the systems that you're involved in, you know, whether it's being a police officer or it's being a a priest and also in yourself. That's like such a huge theme that cuts through both of those movies. Other than that, a very different movie, but very good. And I feel like kind of underrated. It's not a movie that people talk about that much anymore, but Fantastic. Yeah, highly controversial upon release sure. because of the content, but I think has undergone a critical reassessment in the last 10 or 15 years. Yeah. I'm sure there were aspects of it that today are also sort of like problematic, but it's a movie that was made at a certain time. And at the time, I think was really pushing some boundaries that up until fairly recently were still pretty taboo about like people's about people's sexuality and the fluidity of sexuality and stuff like yeah. that. That, like, wouldn't be talked about on film for, you know, ages in, in sort of mainstream cinema. So, pretty yeah, interesting. No, it's, and it's it's got a surprisingly good performance from late period Al Pacino <laughs> as the as the lead the lead detective. Yeah. yeah, that movie's great. 
Well, in terms of what I'd recommend, again, if you're looking for more Friedkin and you haven't seen The French Connection, you have to see The French Connection. I mean, if you love that sort of documentary realism, that is a movie that exudes documentary realism. And every other movie subsequent (laughs) has been trying to rip off what it achieves. It is a movie made by a madman uh, (laughs) about a madman, but it is so, so good. Similarly, another Friedkin movie that up until recently was very, very hard to see, but finally got re-released and in decent quality. It's on Blu-ray and it's great. It's called Sorcerer, which is a remake of the French film The Wages of Fear. Right. And we may cover it eventually because the Mr. Plow episode has some visual parodies that are lifted right out of Sorcerer. Yeah, I mean, like and... one quick aside on that that we didn't even touch on is that the Simpsons always wanted to get Friedkin on The Simpsons. Oh, interesting. And to the point where they actually started inserting parodies of his <laughs> films to try to get him to come on the show. Interesting. Uh, and the source and Sorcerer is one of them. I'm surprised he wouldn't have done it because it's it seems like well, I mean, he's a funny guy, so you'd think he would like <laughs> The Simpsons, but yeah. who knows? Anyway, yeah, so those if you want to check out more Friedkin, any of those three, Cruising, French Connection, Sorcerer. If you're interested in The Exorcist, obviously, like I said, there's those two documentaries you can check out. Leap of Faith, Fear of God. Fear of God It used to be hard to track down, but it is now on the Blu-ray. It's not on the 4K Blu-ray because the 4K Blu-ray has no special features. But I believe if you purchase, and this is the annoying thing, if you purchase the theatrical cut on iTunes, the bonus features does include the Fear of God documentary. Anyway, if it's also probably on YouTube. It's, it's all a behind the scenes. It's great. And you get to see a, a very young handsome mark kermode (laughs) and then throwing it out there into like sort of if you like this movie you might enjoy something similar the conjuring have you ever seen the conjuring i I haven't again this is not not my genre yeah Uh, the conjuring is a similarly based on a true story kind of situation Mm -hmm. about the paranormal investigators that were most famous for investigating the amityville horror case but this movie is them investigating a case of demonic possession but it's set in the 1970s. It's directed by James Wan, the guy who made Saw. Mm. But it's a period piece, and it's very much sort of plays with the aesthetics of the era. It's got, like, a great title sequence. And it's got um, a boy, Patrick Wilson, who I think should be in everything because he's so charming and handsome and yeah. delightful. Yeah, it's great. Of all the modern horror movies I've seen in the last, like, 10 years, it's the closest to... That sort of 70s style of brooding tension. I mean, it's it has jump scares and it does all the sort of modern stuff, but it really sort of feels akin to this style. If you like this sort of more slow burn, ratcheted up before all hell breaks loose kind of movie, as opposed to just like a slasher death a minute kind of situation, then The Conjuring is definitely up there. So cool. Maybe I'll have to give that a shot. I mean, again, I'm very picky about horror movies but that does sound kind of more up my alley. Yeah, I think you'll appreciate it just from the filmmaking standpoint, if nothing else. Yeah. Like, it's just stylistically, it's really interesting. I haven't watched it in probably since it first came out. Mm-hmm. So maybe it doesn't hold up. But I remember really, really liking it. And then the, there are a bunch of sequels that are kind of not very good. But the first <laughs> one I remember being really, really good. I saw it in theaters and like with an audience. And so it was like especially scary because it was one of those things of like the audience was cowering in their seats right during it so nice 
Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpson fans, and the end of this season. This is our non-denominational holiday fun fest episode, which means we're going to take a little break, but we will be back in the new year with a whole new season of great Simpson parodies and classic movies that you probably have seen or should have seen or maybe we'll see for the first time. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, if you enjoyed what you heard, please leave us a review and share this episode with the Simpson fans and film buffs in your life. And until uh, next time, Nate? Happy non-denominational holiday fun fest. We'll see you around the plex. Did I ever tell you my William Freakin Twitter story? <laughs> Do you actually have another Twitter story? Uh-huh. Okay. No, you have not. Uh, no, these ones are these ones are nice though. Oh, nice. Um, so Sorcerer for a long time mm-hmm. was impossible to find and then got a DVD release and then but apparently the DVD like looked like shit. Like it was just like transferred from a VHS or something. Mm-hmm. And but it was released at the same time as the Blu-ray and it was like very confusing. Oh. And so I like and so I went to t- one of the it was like one of the second or third times I had ever been to Lightbox to see a movie at TIFF was to see the brand new restoration of Sorcerer in like 4K or whatever. Sure. So I saw it and then I was like the Blu-ray's out, but I was like kind of confused because it, it was delayed and delayed and delayed. And I, it finally came out. And so I just like tweeted at William Friedman. I'm like, can, is the Blu-ray ready? Like, can I see it? Like, what's going on here? And he basically responded saying something like. Yes, I oversaw the restoration of the Blu-ray. The mm. DVD is a bootleg. Don't buy it, even though it was put out by Warner Brothers. Wow. But he's like, buy the Blu-ray. It's it's good. So that was the first time. And then the second time was I found this incredible trailer for uh, the 2000 re-release of The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. And I just like tweeted it out being like, oh, man, like you you have to watch this international trailer for the the director's cut of The Exorcist. It's so good yeah. at William Friedkin. And he responded being like, thanks, Adam. I love this version of the trailer, too. And Aww. I was just like, oh, Billy. Oh, Billy boy. And uh, yeah, so he was he was very active on Twitter huh. and like and uh, by all accounts, again, he was an insane man, but um, kind of like sounds like a big lovable insane man um you know softened with age but um yeah i by all accounts everyone who knew him would said like yes he would bring me he had brought me to tears on multiple occasions but he's also like my best friend yeah, so yeah interesting sounds like quite a character interesting guy 